This is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast. Episode 31 Rise of the Family There was nothing in Hao Yang's morning to suggest that today would be his last day on Earth. He got dressed, left his apartment, and took a train to the Zijiang district in downtown Beijing. The sky was gray, but promised no rain. He got some maruku twists, two dumplings, and a fried egg on rice for breakfast. After that, he grabbed a coffee from next door and went to his work at the office building across the street. Hao Yang worked for a private company within a front that was a supposed printing company. They allegedly produced cheesy ads that found their way into every Chinese mailbox throughout the country, and all of them subsequently found their way into the trash. He and his company didn't do anything of the sort within the building Hao Yang had just entered. His actual position was on a panel of specialists working to train a powerful AI that would assist China in being the first to implement countrywide control of all utilities and resources. It would give the government total control of every aspect of every life in the country, a single step toward a larger grid that could potentially affect every life in the world. As soon as Hao Yang entered his office, he was called to his supervisor's office. He entered for 25 minutes, saying nothing as three shadows paced the room that could be seen through the blinds beyond the office window outside. When he left the room, his face looked downcast, and he carried an expensive metal briefcase with a security lock next to the handle. He went to his office only to grab his wallet and jacket before leaving the office building. He said nothing to no one on his way out as he was instructed. He didn't take the train home, but took a cab while keeping the briefcase under his coat. He looked over his shoulder, watching the cars behind him. Looking out the window, it felt as though every face he passed turned to look at him. His boss and supervisor told him that it was very likely interested parties would try to follow him, but it was extremely important that he get to the airport as soon as possible. His boss had yelled at him for not bringing his passport, but how was he to know that they would tell him he needed to leave the country immediately and that there was a plane waiting for him right now? Hao Yang hurried up to his apartment. He withdrew his keys and was about to put them in the door lock when he grabbed the door handle and turned to find the door push open, unlocked. Had he forgotten to lock the door this morning? He didn't think he had. He vividly remembered pushing the key in and turning it. Maybe he had put it in, and maybe turned it to unlock it instead of lock it. He didn't know, but something felt wrong as he turned on the hall light and looked around the threshold of his apartment. His passport was in the drawer by the door, so he slid open the drawer, grabbed his red passport booklet, and quickly hurried down the corridor the other direction from the stairs. He ducked into another hall corridor, then peered around the corner to see a man exit his apartment and jog to the stairs where Hao Yang should have gone. Fear filled his insides as his heart hammered in his chest. He went to the elevator on the other side of his apartment building that was reserved for handicapped tenants. Entering, he rode the elevator to the ground floor where he exited out the back of the building to walk down the narrow avenue between rundown restaurants, karaoke bar, and pool hall toward the busy street several blocks behind his apartment. He felt his cell phone vibrate in his breast pocket. The number on the ID was unknown. He dropped the phone back into his pocket and hailed a cab. The cab took him all the way to the Beijing Capital International Airport on the northeast side of town. 
he was able to find his company's private airstrip while navigating the interior of the airport in such a way that might throw off anyone tailing him. He didn't think anyone was following him as he left the restroom, then crossed the terminal hall to their airstrip. The Learjet 60 private aircraft they shuttled the executives of the company around in was ready and waiting for him to climb aboard. With a final cursory glance over his shoulder to confirm no one was behind him, Hao Yang stepped onto the aircraft and found a cushy seat by the window. His two pilots greeted him and waved before entering the cockpit. Ten minutes later, they were roaring down the runway to enter the hazy white sky. Relief met Hao Yang's insides as the plane lifted into the air and soared west toward the endless horizon ahead. Hao Yang didn't know when he fell asleep, but the flight promised to be six more hours before they would reach Pakistan. What woke him was a simple sound, and from very far away. It was only the peculiar distinct sound that brought him back from a deep dream where he was standing by a river. For a split second, after hearing the squeak of the plastic panels of the floor shifting in front of him, Hao Yang wanted to stay by the river. He was still able to see the shine of the sun glimmering off its gently running surface when he opened his eyes to see the co-pilot of the plane standing in front of him. Except he wasn't wearing the polo and khaki pants he'd been wearing earlier. He wore a black skydiving jumpsuit with a parachute on his back, and he was brandishing a silenced pistol at his face. Bye, Hao, the co-pilot said in Mandarin. Hao's eyes widened with a desperate protest on his tongue. And that was all Hao Yang knew before his world scattered to red and black darkness. Kyle Walters grabbed the briefcase handle from Hao Yang's now lax grip. The man lulled back and forth with the turbulence now that the autopilot had been turned off and the Learjet plane was gliding slowly toward the earth below. He turned around to go for the plane's boarding door when he was bull-rushed from the side by a small woman in a black uniform. His gun flew from his hand and landed somewhere under the seats. Just as quickly as Kyle had taken control of the plane, he was fighting to regain hold of it. His reactionary combat reflexes took over as he and the girl, she was Asian, though he wasn't sure if she was Chinese, were thrown into a full-blown fistfight on the plane that was descending into dangerous elevations. The wings and air of the wind could change at any moment before the plane would make a sharp downward dip toward the earth below. The girl couldn't have been older than 20 years old as she darted between his punches only to slam her fist into his stomach that was largely cushioned by his bulletproof vest. She landed a kick in his face that happened so quickly he didn't even see her move. Every attempt he made to strike her was blocked and retaliated against intelligently. He couldn't get her into a hold, but she staggered on the extended lounge chair footrest. Kyle kicked the girl in the chest hard, sending her sprawling through the aisle of white cushioned luxury seats. Before she could get back up, he went for the two halves to the exit hatch. The plane shuddered with sudden turbulence. Rapidly rolling the door handle counterclockwise, the exit ramp and upper hatch burst open with the wind. Relief hit him as Kyle was out and soaring into the overcast sky toward the northeastern Himalayas below with the briefcase in hand. He had dropped the plane to around 14,000 feet before leaving the controls. That probably put him at around 10 or 11,000 feet. Below him, the Indersand Mountain climbed into the sky with its tendrils of mountain range spreading throughout the planet around it like the large roots of a tree. The plane would go down around here and Kyle had made sure it would look like an accident. He quickly checked his watch to see that it was 2 in the afternoon. He was about to hook a carabiner to the handle of the suitcase so he wouldn't lose it when he deployed the parachute, but what looked like a falcon swam out of his peripheral vision. 
Kyle looked over in time to see the woman he thought he had left behind come swirling through the sky like a demon. She sped like a bullet past him, landing a punch across his cheek that struck him so hard that stars exploded through his mind. Just as before, his consciousness came to in a reflexive series of protections and jabs while the two free fell through the air over the border mountain ranges between China and India. He used the briefcase to defend himself half the time, but then the girl outsmarted him. She threw a false right that he brought the briefcase up to deflect. She then grabbed half of the handle next to his hand and pulled her ripcord, but not before pressing both boots upon Kyle's chest. With the impact of an explosion, Kyle and his grasp upon the briefcase handle were rocketed away from the two as the young woman's parachute floated her out of reach. Kyle pulled the ripcord to his parachute, but it was already too late. The girl was soaring toward the mountain below while he and his part in the story of the briefcase floated east down the mountain away from any chance of catching her. He would later organize a search party to see if they could find her, but they never did. Gashi glided toward the snow-capped mountain ahead. She did what Kyle had meant to do and hooked a carabiner to a cord that wrapped her wrist. The Learjet dipped around the mountain's peak and continued banking to the right until it fell away beyond the mountain range. There was a flash and a distant explosion, but Gashi didn't see anything. Her white circular parachute flapped in the wind above her as it carried her at a relaxed speed over the ruts and ridges of the terrain below. The wind carried her over the top of Mount Deotiba, and the cushy snow that had been Kyle Walter's landing pad passed below as the wind carried her northwest. The toes of her black boots skidded over a hill of snow she had hoped to catch, but she continued toward another cliff that clutched the runoff of the big mountain that blocked out the sun behind her. Gashi was coming in a little hot, and the next ridge was more rock than snow. Gravity had made her choice for her already, so there was nothing she could do. She slammed into the rocks and snow, but the wind caught the parachute and pulled her off the ridge. Gashi was dragged over the cliff and tumbled with the briefcase in tow down the slope. She was no longer conscious when she came to a stop face first in a heap of snow and parachute at the base of the snow-capped mountain. 1. Ya Jun and Miss Jun Li had just finished their customary weekly lovemaking. Unknown to Jun Li, Ya Jun's other name was Muna. The year was 2002, three years after his leave from South Korea's ANSP, Agency for National Security Planning. His tenure ended when they renamed the institution in 1999 to the National Intelligence Service. His connection to the government allowed him to navigate under the radar to begin what would become South Korea's most dangerous assassin guild known only as the Family. He had recruited and trained special agents for the ANSP, so he did the same for new family members. Jun Lee left the hotel restroom and dropped onto the bed next to Ya Jun. You know how you're always asking about my best math students for your Olympiad team? Of course, Ya Jun said, lowering the newspaper to the bedside table before clasping his hands onto his stomach. I've just had a student transfer from Ichion to our school here in Busan. She might be the best math student I've ever encountered, and she's only 16. Really? Yajun tried not to sound too interested, but he was. Jun preferred students of military age, between the ages of 18 and 24. Some of his recruits were younger, mostly 15 and 16 years old because they showed prowess. However, most young people were too foolhardy, resulting in several premature deaths while the program was still gaining its footing. He tried to avoid students younger than 17 unless they were exceptional. 
Because Muna was a proactive recruiter, he frequently brought gifts for the many local schools around South Korea. He would take part in school board meetings, communicate with teachers and parents, and keep tabs on potential candidates for the family. Finding good students wasn't easy, but Muna knew which students would be keepers and which ones would be temporary. One of the biggest reasons Muna communicated directly with teachers was because he wasn't looking for just any student. The future student in question would need to be the strong, silent type. They would need considerable reflexes, have a background that could be erased, and be moldable mentally for the organization's needs. Being a figure of high charisma helped Muna in all of his efforts. He was able to coax the teachers to talk to him and tell him things they wouldn't often tell normal people. Her name is Che Marie, said Jun Lee. Her mother tells me she's an only child. All she does is study. She's not interested in dating, dancing, or dramas like the other students. I think there's a lot of pressure from the parents, but I also think she's on the spectrum. There's something cold and calculating about her that I'm not sure about. Interesting. Muna pressed his glasses up onto his nose then grabbed his newspaper once more. He scanned it, but didn't read it. He didn't need to know any more about Che Marie to be interested. Everything her teacher had mentioned told him she was precisely the candidate he had been looking to find. The two parted company that afternoon, and Mona went to work. He gathered as much information about Marie as possible. Once he gained enough knowledge about her family, he moved to his own personal databases. Her father worked for a shipping company in Busan, and her mother worked at an elementary school as a music teacher. She had once played the violin in the Seoul Symphony Orchestra before meeting Mani's father. It was unfortunate what would need to happen to two essentially innocent people, but work was work, and diamonds aren't made from soft actions. Che Mani, who would later be known as Kashi, was born in Ichion, South Korea. She was a normal girl, except very quiet. Her family was on the lower end of middle class, but other than knowing Marie was more intelligent than the average student, they would never know that she had high-functioning autism. There were only two people who would ever suspect Marie had autism, and that would be her 10th grade teacher Miss Chun Li and Muna himself. Yajun exited his office and took a walk around the block. He waited for a pedestrian to finish using the payphone, then got inside the booth and made a call. The line rang three times before a man answered. It's Muna, he said casually. I have a quick and easy job for you and your brother. Pay is the usual. A couple of stipulations, but it should make the job easier. Muna gave the location details for Che Marie's home to a few of his amateur on-call specialists. He could not know that setting this action in motion would spell the end of his family of assassins, and perhaps even himself. One cannot know such things about the future. How could he have ever predicted that by calling these men he would unleash a demon that would consume all within its path? 2. At a series of apartment complexes at 176 Jinnam Road, under the shade of the Hangryong Mountain in central Busan, two men wearing sunglasses parked their black Subaru on the street. They each wore a blazer with a white t-shirt underneath. Duquan and Manshik got out and made their way to the third floor of the second apartment building. The note from Muna read that it was apartment 63. They were to take everything of value, dispose of the adult occupants, but under no circumstances were they to harm the teenage girl that would be studying in her small room within the home. The two climbed the stairs to the third floor and entered the corridor leading between the apartment rooms. They found 63, 
made sure they were at the right room, and then took off their sunglasses. Manchik rapped on the white door with the golden number 63 above the glass viewing port. The door opened, and Chase Young answered. Good afternoon, we're from Marie's school, said Duquan. Can we please come inside? Sure, Say Yun looked worried, but allowed the men to enter. The apartment wasn't large, but Che Mari stood in the middle of the living room, watching the men as they stepped inside. At sixteen years old, Mari wore her day school blouse and skirt while clutching a physics book at her side. Her long black hair was parted in the middle. She glared at the two men, as unnerved by their presence as her mother. Hey there, little lady, Manchik said to Marie. Why don't you go study in your room while we chat with your mom? Marie didn't move. She must be broken, Duquan said after a few seconds of silence. How about this? He reached into his coat pocket and withdrew a small K-5 pistol, pointing at Marie. As cold as ice, Marie didn't move and remained almost completely motionless. Manchik produced his own K-5 from the inside of his blazer, then fluidly pointed the gun at Seiyun's forehead. She screamed, but her scream was cut short as Manchik pulled the trigger, ending her life before Marie's eyes. Marie's mouth fell open as she dropped her physics book, then took a step to go to her mother, but Duquan held her back. Hey, you were supposed to go to your bedroom. All this went sideways because you couldn't follow orders, and now you're paying the price. Seiyun! Marie's father, Che Chi Ho, charged from the bedroom in his slacks and undershirt. Manchik turned and shot him as he entered the small living room where everyone was standing. Oops! Manchik shrugged as Marie's father fell forward in a collapsed heap, bleeding out. Marie fell to her knees with her head in her hands as both her parents lay on either side of the living room before her, and now these men were going to do God knew what to her. Geez, whatever happened to slow and painful? Duquan asked. What? He was coming at me, Manchik said. Watch the girl. Duquan shook his head, returning the pistol to his breast pocket. Manchik kept his gun trained upon Marie, who was still on her knees. She kept her head down, her hair down over her face. Duquan cased the house, taking everything of value. He even took her mother's violin, which was likely the most valuable item they owned. With a sack of things in one hand, and the violin in its case tucked under his other arm, Duquan motioned for them to leave. You don't want a taste? Manchik nodded at the girl. Not this time. Strict orders from the top. Duquan grabbed the phone mounted on the wall and tore it down. He yanked the wires and broke the device on the countertop. Throughout all of this, Marie remained defeated on her knees. Hey, sweetheart. Duquan snapped his fingers at Marie as he crouched before her. Do yourself a favor and, uh, make sure you have a foggy memory about what we looked like. Otherwise, you never know. Someone might come back and finish the job. Duquan tapped her shoulder and got up. Let's get out of here, Manchik said as Duquan followed him to the entrance. They left the door open as they hurried down the apartment hall passage outside. A few people peered from their apartment doors down the corridor, but no one got a good look at them. They hurried down the steps to their car on the street, got inside, and sped away. 3. It's so horrible what happened to that poor girl, Jun Lee told Muna over the phone while Muna was eating lunch at his desk. And I was just telling you about her. I have no idea what this kind of trauma is going to do to this child. Muna sighed, playing the role as if all of this was new to him. 
he hummed and waited a few seconds before replying. The problem with these sorts of incidents is they'll naturally leave a lasting impact on the girl. What she needs is self-defense. She should never feel helpless as she was in that situation again. Against men with guns? Junli asked. There's only so much a person can do. You might be surprised, said Muna. A small apartment like that? I don't want to brag, but it's very unlikely those two men would have walked out alive if they would have entered my home. Maybe you should teach her self-defense. Junli laughed on the other end of the line. She's still in school, right? Muna took the coming time to pluck several strands of noodles from his bowl of chapche and shove them into his mouth. Yes, she's staying at the Boboso Child Protection Center a few blocks from the high school. Junli sighed. She'll be put up for adoption soon. What a tragedy. Muna finished chewing his noodles. I'd like to meet her if possible. She needs all the help she can get, and I'd like to offer her an internship at our company here. So long as she can stay in school, there's a place where she can earn money and save for the life of which she was deprived. Also, I'm selfishly hoping she can join my Olympiad team. That's a wonderful opportunity, said Jun Lee. She's usually in my class until the end of the day at four. You can meet her if you'd like to give her the idea yourself. Is this afternoon too soon? Muna asked. I don't think so, replied Jun Lee. It shouldn't be a problem. Great. In that case, I'll see you this afternoon. Muna bid Jun Lee farewell and the two hung up. A few hours later, Muna was on his way to the high school where he would meet Che Marie for the first time. The moment he laid eyes upon Marie, he knew she was ready. She was moldable, attentive, emotionless, but also unmemorable. She could seem like all the other students when she was in a group. She wasn't an eye-catching supermodel, but she was charismatic. Muna gave Jun Lee a peck on the cheek when they met, and then she introduced him to Che Marie, who was seated at the back of the class. She liked to do her homework in solitude while Jun Lee graded papers. Nothing had changed about that habit since before her parents were killed. Marie said very little while in the presence of Jun Lee, so Muna beckoned for her to follow and take a walk with him. She looked to Jun Lee, who nodded, assuring her it was fine. Gathering her things, Marie put her book bag over her shoulder and followed Muna out of the classroom. She wore her school uniform blouse, but her blazer was folded in her bag under her books. She was already too much woman for the uniform, so it looked childish on her figure. I hear you've had a bad time recently, Muna said as the two walked down the nearly empty afternoon corridor of the school. You probably think I'm going to tell you something stupid like, you've got to keep trying, or if you just keep working hard, you'll do well in Korea. But that's not what I want to talk to you about. Marie listened and said nothing as Muna spoke. What I'm going to tell you next, I'd like you to not tell your teacher. Can you do that? Muna asked as the two paused next to the side door of the school. The sun shining through the glass windows around the metal door was hot on his sports jacket sleeve. The two met one another's eyes, and Marie nodded. I'm going to teach you to hunt down the men who killed your parents. What? Marie spoke, glaring at him. I worked for the ANSP, shrugged Muna. I can teach you how to find anyone pretty much anywhere, and then, well, what happens after that is up to you. Che Marie didn't say anything for a long time as she looked past Muna at nothing in particular. Her forehead crinkled in thought. How? She returned her attention to him. First, I'll show you how to track people. 
It's not difficult. People are easier to find than you might think, especially if you are looking for them. That's the easy part. But if you are serious, then I'll show you how to go beyond that. I'll show you how to never be a victim again. It didn't take long for Che Marie to come up with her reply. I will do this. I had a feeling you might say that. He gave a small, calculated smile. Mona thought Chamonix might not be able to follow through with their agreement to meet up the next evening at the coffee shop close to his work due to the heavy rain, but was surprised to see her enter beneath an umbrella with her book bag over one shoulder. She wore a sweater with the white collar of her blouse hooking over the neck, and her school uniform skirt over her knee-high socks and dress shoes. The bags under her eyes showed that she was exhausted from working too hard and sleeping too little. She closed her umbrella and sat in the booth across from him. He ordered a coffee for himself, but Marie didn't want anything. So tell me, Mona lowered his voice to just above a whisper, what would you do to the men if you could make them feel as helpless as you felt when they murdered your parents? Marie stared at a place on the table for about five seconds. I wouldn't make them feel helpless. I would end their lives on sight. Mona flashed a surprised look at the prospect. Is it that easy? No, but it can be. Isn't that right? Money asked. There was a long pause as the two stared at one another. The rain beyond the window next to them became the most noticeable sound amidst the quiet jazz music humming over the radio while the shop workers made coffee. The barista brought over Muna's coffee and placed it in front of him. Thank you, he nodded to her, returning his attention to Marie. He relaxed, becoming cool as he reclined against the booth seat. You need training. Vengeance is one thing, but blind rage will get you killed. Training for what? Mali asked. Muna met her eyes again. Training in the art of taking life. She replied with a cold. When can I start? What if I told you that you can only start under one condition, and it requires not a simple yes or no answer? You must give up everything. Your life, your schooling grades, and your identity altogether. You will never be able to return to a normal life once you are reborn into my family. Get up and walk away right now. You'll never see me again, and that's fine. You can go back to your life and mourn your parents, and you'll have the chance to live a normal life. But if you choose to stay, I will show you everything I've promised and more. Muna waited for Marie to leave, but she didn't. She looked conflicted. The rain began to lighten outside. I'm going to get up and leave, he said after a long time of silence. I'd like you to follow, if you are still interested in what we've discussed. Muna got to his feet and walked toward the door. Marie stared at the table, then got up to follow. He put his hands into his pockets and walked out into the rain that was falling upon downtown Busan. She popped her umbrella and kept pace with Muna as they went around the block. Every city building has a side or back entrance to the street for staff or residents to enter. To the casual pedestrian, the nondescript doors go unnoticed as their contents are on a need-to-know basis. The only reason one would ever go through one of these doors is if they worked there or had an invitation. Seemingly at random, Muna and Marie broke from their pedestrian crowd and their small roof of umbrellas to approach one of these doors. Marie looked up to see a tall building that looked like a hotel disappearing into the cloudy mist overhead, then followed Muna inside. They entered a busy kitchen, the regular smell of kimchi and spices in the air as they hurried to prepare dinner. 
Muna and Mali walked past one of the chefs who made no acknowledgement of their existence. He opened another door against the far wall of the kitchen and held it open for Marie. She stepped past him to enter a darkened stairwell with only a single yellow bulb for illumination. Muna closed the door behind them and followed her down the steps to a single locked door. He pressed a key into the lock and opened the door to what looked like a large flat. It was hard to describe the area because it was a little bit of everything. There was a large open-walled kitchen in one corner, an office with three computer monitors, a corridor leading to at least a dozen small rooms with neatly kept single beds, a door to a shooting range, and a large kiosk of racks home to a legitimate arsenal of weaponry. This is our Busan location. The big one is in Seoul, Mona said, and looked to Marie. She walked around the flat with interest, stopping to look at one of the gun racks. There was a pistol in one of the slots. Muna leaned on the doorframe, watching as Marie removed the pistol from the rack and turned it over in her hands. He pushed off the wall with his elbow and walked toward her with his hands in his jacket pockets. That's a modified Israeli Jericho 941 with a 45 ACP barrel. A good pistol, but what you're looking for is a 22. He paused next to her and ran his fingers down the backs of the guns, stopping on the Beretta 71. Sometimes the pistol chooses the person. He gave it to Marie and took the forty-five from her and put it away. None of the guns were loaded within the rack. Want to shoot it? Ten minutes later, Marie was wearing a pair of ear protectors and a pair of safety glasses as she raised the Beretta 71 to the target upon the paper twenty-five yards away. Muna had wanted to give her a short instruction, but wanted to let her feel the heat of the weapon in her hands before going through the fast-paced reloading regime. However, Marie was taking to the process like no one he had ever witnessed, and she had hardly spoken a word. She fired in succession until the magazine was empty, missing a number of shots, only striking two on the silhouette itself. Everyone's a beginner at some point, Muna shrugged. I should keep practicing. 4. Months passed. Che Marie spent the time she wasn't in school or dealing with her temporary guardian at the Busan hideout learning how to shoot at the shooting range. Guns are a rare thing to see outside of movies and television in South Korea, so being able to practice would normally be a challenge. The only other place one would be able to practice with live ammunition would be a military base, or at some large compound with enough privacy and distance for the sound of gunfire to dissipate. Every afternoon, after she finished with her classes for the day, Marie would meet Muna at the coffee shop, then follow him to the underground flat. Muna taught her everything he knew, how to properly load and reload, how to triangulate her aim, and how to accommodate the kick of the weapon after the first shot in a series of rapid shots. Safety was of the utmost importance. People who became overconfident often shot themselves by accident. Muna also taught Marie the subtle art of covert ops how to remain invisible until the moment you wish to be known by your target. Spycraft was something that took a long time to master, but as with the weaponry, Marie took to the art like an apprentice to their teacher. She shadowed him as he instructed, learning to track dangerous individuals within the city. She learned by doing. Once the school year was over, Marie was able to be erased completely. Muna had an adoption method via a third party that would allow them to virtually disappear Mali into the ether. She would go by many names, but Kashi became her name with Muna while the two were in Busan. It was the Korean word for thorn. 
Manchik got into the driver's seat of the black Subaru as Duquan got into the passenger side. Manchik turned on the car to warm up and cracked the window so he could smoke a cigarette. Duquan lit his own and stuck it into his mouth as he shifted in his seat to withdraw his wallet. They were parked on the street down the road from the National Museum of Korea. The purple twilight of the evening had just set in as night started its rain. I bought last time, Manchik smirked. I got it, said Duquan. What do you want to eat? I really want some dumpling soup, just like mom used to make, Manchik grinned. But it's gotta be fresh wrapping, you know, where it's got that extra thickness and doesn't just melt in your mouth. I know, Duquan said, stroking his stubbled chin. There's a good place downtown, but it's always busy, at least a 30-minute wait. Most places use pre-made dumplings, but this place makes them fresh. 30 minutes to get exactly what I want? I'll take it, Manchik said. The two glanced up to see a girl in her school uniform walk by with her book bag slung over her shoulder. Manchik looked down to change the radio station. The girl paused and squinted as she looked across the street. That's when Duquan cocked his head, realizing that he had recognized her from somewhere. His brain attempted to grapple with who she was. She crossed in front of the car as his mind finally made the connection. It was the girl with the permanent scowl whose parents they had killed on Muna's orders. She produced a small black weapon from under her book bag, turned, and like lightning, the windshield was splashed with cracks and holes from their perspective. Using her heavy book bag to minimize the recoil, Marie fired into the driver and passenger areas beyond the now distorted windshield until the magazine of her 9mm mini Uzi was empty. Sirens erupted in the distance, and that's when Marie ducked and ran down an alley nearby. The passenger door opened and Duquan fell out of the car. He had six 9mm bullets embedded in his chest as he struggled to breathe. Behind him, Manchik was slumped in his seat with the cigarette still smoldering between his fingers, two bullet holes in either part of his skull among the other shots that had met his chest. Duquan breathed slower and slower until the paramedics arrived to haul him into the back of their ambulance. It was already too late. 5. That was the first time Marie learned that revenge, particularly when murder was involved, was one of the least satisfying emotions a person could feel. The two men who had killed her parents were dead, killed by her hand in action, but the hole they left in her life could not be filled with their corpses, or any number of corpses. The job was done as it was destined to be. Muna had his new recruit, one of the most talented shooters he had ever encountered, and she was completely enthralled with the cause, well on her way to being one of the most effective assassins at his disposal. It was a job well done. Muna had a celebratory drink as Marie blended with a crowd of other schoolgirls on their way home. It was impossible for a person to withdraw a small firearm and fire it into a public place in South Korea without someone noticing, but the only description of the subject the police had was that it was a young girl in her school uniform. Long black hair, brown eyes. That described virtually every girl between the ages of 13 and 18 in the city. Marie would get away. She would meet him shortly in the Seoul headquarters, and it would be good. Just as he expected, Che Marie hurried down the steps to return her weapon to the kiosk, and to let him know that she had gotten her targets. Excellent, said Muna as he reclined at his desk seat. Are you ready for a real job? I've been training for three months, said Marie. Why haven't I met anyone else who works with us? You'll meet the other family members once you've been initiated, Muna said, reclining in his office chair. 
How do I become initiated? Marie asked. Finish your first contract. Oh, she spoke. Muna opened the desk drawer at his side and withdrew a file to place it on the desktop. He twisted his hand to flip the folder around for Marie to be able to see it. He opened it to show a profile and a picture of a man who obviously didn't know he was being photographed as he looked off to his left while carrying a case of Koss beer from his car to what appeared to be the back entrance to a bar. Though he was doing grunt work, he wore a nice blue dress shirt with the sleeves rolled up to his elbows. This is Song Hoon. He owns and operates a bar in Yongsan known as the Monster in Malache, Muna continued. We don't kill innocent people, no matter how much money we're offered. The only contracts we take are for people who deserve to be killed, which means we gather enough information from our sources to qualify a suspected hit for the contract. Our friend Sung Hoon plays himself as an innocent entrepreneur that's been running this bar for 12 years. But on the side, we've gathered enough evidence to conclude that he's running a sex trafficking ring for young Korean women who are barely of legal age. Many of his victims are from lower class families who are probably your age or younger. This sounds big enough for the police to get involved. Why not leave it to them? Marie asked. There was a deadpan expression on Mona's face as he stared back at Marie. He blinked and massaged his clean-shaven chin. It's not that the police are bad, but that they aren't paid well enough to investigate deeply when a bar that operates like the monster donates millions to the police agency. There's not enough evidence up top from basic appearances for an investigation to take place. So all you have are a few complaints from poor families who have missing children and zero leads on where they've gone. No one knows these girls have disappeared into the depths of the monster, but we have enough cross-examination evidence because we're looking at Sung Hoon's roster along with the missing persons reports. What you have here, Muna placed a finger on the top of the 50 or so pages within the folder, is the culmination of my undercover work from the last month. I'll teach you how to do this so that eventually you'll be able to put together your own contracts for my approval. I'll do it, Marie said. I figured this one would be right up your alley, said Muna. But killing isn't enough in this situation. It's about sending a message to potential future investors in this sort of industry. They can expect the sort of results you're going to give them in the future. And that means the 22 won't cut it. This wouldn't be as simple as walking up to two people in a car and taking them out. Even that was easier than it should have been. But this wasn't just Sung Hoon. He had a dozen men working for him, all of whom would need to be cleared from the sex trafficking industry permanently. The area around the bar was known as a more seedy part of town as there were a lot of American servicemen patronizing the pubs. They got into fights and were always looking for girls. It would be the ideal location to set up a front for a more sinister operation. Within the folder Marie was given were the names of those 12 people who worked different jobs within the bar and trafficking ring. Based on the training Muna had given her so far, the targets would need to be eliminated altogether within a short period of time to prevent one or the other from becoming a flight risk. The moment the plan was initiated and the more time that passed, the more variables could arise. Muna had their target's weekly schedules mapped. However, Muna also warned her never to fully trust any intelligence she might gather without first verifying its quality with a few simple tests. Technically, all the legwork was done. She would just need to spend a day scanning the patterns to confirm the intel, and then find a line she could follow. Step one was making an entrance. 
Step two was to execute the plan to eliminate her target or targets, and step three was to exit without being identified. The rest of the plan would fall into place after that. Eight of her targets worked the bar Friday nights, which meant eight targets could be eliminated all at once. There were a few hiccups, and those would be the bouncer, the servers, and bartenders of the bar itself. These other people had nothing to do with the underground ring going on behind closed doors. They were also potential eyewitnesses, or could become involved when the shooting began. She would need to take out the other four who weren't at the bar first, quietly if possible, but also make sure the employees and patrons weren't harmed by her plan. Muddy spent six hours prior to the first shift that was scheduled at the Monster in a coffee shop a few blocks away, scanning a schematic of the building overview. She knew the way this would go already, but still needed to get a mental image of the bar layout firsthand before she would be ready. She studied the daily habits of each person, finding the path of least resistance, calculating routes, and planning the most effective executions between each target. At five in the afternoon, she left the coffee shop and made her way to the Monster Bar. It didn't look like the other bars that were connected at the base of the apartment flats towering along Malajay Row. It stood independent of the other buildings, a large two-story villa with an outdoor wraparound patio on the second floor. There were already people seated on the second floor, enjoying an afternoon cocktail while oblivious to the true purpose of the bar around them. She passed by one of the bouncers and entered the bar to stand in line with several others. She scanned the room while she waited, memorizing faces, taking note of potential threats. Once the two people ahead of her were whisked away to their table by a server, Mali stepped forward as the hostess greeted her. Hello, just one today? the hostess asked. She wore the classic black blouse and black slacks combination. I was hoping I might be able to get an application, Mali said. The hostess girl looked her up and down. Her name tag said, Hey Ran. You're a little young. You might check out some of the restaurants around town. There are lots of server jobs you could get, and then when you're 20, you can come back and become a server or bartender. I was told to ask for Hyun Woo because he would be able to give me a job specifically, Mali said. Hey Ran's color went a shade whiter as her face fell. That meant she knew more than she should because Hyun Woo was one of the recruiters involved in the trafficking ring. Oh, she paused. I can go grab him real quick and see what he says. Thank you, Marie said. The hostess left the front podium for a few minutes and returned with a disgruntled-looking Hyun Woo. You asked for me? Hyun Woo checked her out. He had unkempt black hair and an unshaven mustache and beard that would have made him look trashy, except that he wore a nice royal blue polo, slacks, and had a silver Rolex on his wrist. Yes, I was told you were hiring, Marie said. Hyun Woo squinted his eyes as he surveyed her. Who told you we were hiring? Ye Jun, a few days ago, Marie said. Ye Jun was supposed to be off tonight, so it was a good way to verify her intel once more. So far, everything from Muna's folder was accurate. Hyun Woo's expression softened. He looked her up and down again. Let me show you around. He motioned for her to follow him to the back. She followed him to a corridor that led past the offices and kitchen. Hyun Woo stopped at a door with a large diamond private sign on it and placed his hand on the doorknob. So, I can hire you as a server for minimum wage, and it wouldn't be bad, but if you really want to know where the money is. He turned the doorknob and cracked the door to show Malie the open hall back room where three pretty girls around her age were dancing at poles on stage. There were dozens of drunk American soldiers grinning up at them hungrily from round tables in the audience. 
It's just that Ye Jun usually only recruits particular girls for this job, and you look perfect. Hyun Woo closed the door and led Mali back to the front. I'll have to quit my current job so I can start next week. Mali gave him a neutral smile that was difficult to maintain. Hyun Woo looked oddly surprised by her quick response. Most girls who show up are pretty, but they're in a bad way, or they're in a financially irreconcilable situation. Marley wasn't either of those things, and she was signing up essentially for an escort service as though it were any other job. But Hyun Woo also was able to taste some of the product, and he wanted to taste Marie. He mistook her application in spite of the honest truth before her eyes for gullibility, so he assumed he would be able to lure her deeper into the clutches of their operation, business as usual. Sounds good. Next Friday, he stated. Marie nodded leaving her name and number with him before she left the building. He could not know as he watched her go with the application in his hand that he would never taste Che Marie Hyo-san, according to her application. His life was set to end in one week, but he couldn't know that, so he lived his life as usual. Marie spent the following few days preparing her reload technique. She had the layout of the building memorized, all obstructions and potential variables accounted for. Everything was planned. The only thing that needed to be done was the execution. She was still on the fence about which guns she should take with her and how she would cycle through them as she progressed through the monster. She could literally go in guns blazing, but subtlety was more appealing and would become her signature outside of a few extenuating circumstances. Sometimes absolute destruction is necessary, but as abhorrent as the monster was, a more surgical operation was in order. That narrowed her options on weapons considerably. As she would come to learn, preparation takes far longer than the actual execution. The Friday of, as she was outfitting her arsenal in the Seoul hideout, Muna entered. Over the last few weeks, he arrived to hear everything she had worked through and said little, if anything. He said often that there was no right way to do any of this. There were plenty of wrong ways to do it, a lesson that could only be learned in the unfortunate circumstance of one's death. There was no room for error, so she would need to be absolutely certain this would work. Do you think you are ready? Muna asked. She turned from the ammunition kiosk and met his eyes. I've already started. 6. Jihoon liked to start his day quickly so that he could get to working out as soon as possible. After downing some egg whites and orange juice, he grabbed the plastic container of creatine and dumped the spoon of the creatine powder into a glass of milk. Stirring it up, he turned on the news as he sipped the formula that hadn't completely dissolved yet. Chunks of creatine powder passed over his tongue as he drank. A strange, salty aftertaste played on his tongue for a few seconds that he didn't recognize. He thought nothing of it. Hitting the power button on the television remote, Ji-hoon started toward the workout room of his apartment. There was a little pain in his chest and stomach as he made his way down the hall. His throat began to feel hard and that's when he knew something was wrong. He grabbed his neck that now felt as hard as a rock. He tried to take in breath, but it was like he couldn't expand his stomach and lungs enough to take in a proper amount of air. Regardless of the quality, that would be his final full breath. Jihoon grabbed the doorway to his workout room and pushed off to go back to the kitchen where the phone was. He would need to call the police as quickly as possible, but his legs locked and he fell down. His whole body was undergoing a rapid state of paralysis. He tried to breathe, but his chest burned with pain. 
He tried again, thinking he would break bones if he could to breathe, but it was impossible. His forehead pounded with pain. His entire body became a fleshy brick as his functions swelled and failed one after the other. His death would have been more painful, but with the overdose of crystallized tetrodotoxin in his bloodstream, he died when his brain could no longer receive oxygen within about five minutes of his initial symptoms. He had been dead for 16 hours by the time his body was discovered. 16 blocks east and 4 blocks west, four hours after Ji Hoon had met his demise, the two Sung Ho's that worked with them, both from different regions and of different descent, each received a package in the mail from Hei Ran, the pretty hostess from their workplace. Each had ogled over her on more than one occasion, so receiving a gift from her that seemed so personal was intriguing. The package they received was identical in every way, a carefully gift-wrapped puzzle box that requested the reader to pull a small string to unlock the next part of the puzzle, the cylindrical box buried in another color of gift wrapping within. Unfortunately for the two Sung Ho's, there was no second part of the puzzle because the string was connected to a carefully constructed pipe bomb that had been made by Marie. Their lives ended in fiery shrapnel within their apartments, none the wiser that their deaths had taken place within a few hours of one another. He Young, the only woman who worked with the recruiters and was also the most successful, had ordered her favorite dish for her afternoon on her day off. She did this almost every week, but it was Marie in the Korean fusion restaurant uniform from the place she normally ordered from. Answering the door to her apartment, He Young stepped out in her pajamas and slippers. It's still hot! Marie handed He Young a white plastic bag with actual Chinese food inside. Marie balanced the food on her right wrist. In Mali's hand was the silenced Beretta 71. He Young took the food, and that's when Mali flipped the gun to her stomach and pulled the trigger six times while walking He Young back into her apartment. She set He Young down in a chair adjacent to the doorway with the bag of Chinese food over her stomach. She reactively went for the phone by the chair, but Mali calmly pulled it out of her reach. Ending things quickly was best, and He Young was still alive despite the six twenty-two bullets in her gut. Mali placed the gun to the woman's forehead and pulled the trigger amidst her struggling protests. Leaving He Young's apartment, Mali grabbed the black handbag of her things that she had left in the corridor and made her way to the monster. That was four down, and everyone else was at the bar itself. It was time to work. Mali dropped the pistol's magazine and reloaded it with a fresh one. She went to a convenience store restroom to change into her school uniform. She approached the monster from the back where the air conditioners and electrical units were hidden from the wraparound balcony. Dropping the handbag around the back corner next to the building's emergency exit, Marie made her way toward the front of the building. She carried a Smith & Wesson 1911 pistol and a dual holster under each arm beneath her uniform jacket. She wore a nice tie that was clipped to her blouse to keep it from getting in her way when things got busy. The tie clip also contained a pill that she could eat that would end her life in short order should the job go bad. In the waistband of her skirt at the small of her back was a 50 cal Desert Eagle Magnum that Muna claimed was one of his favorites. It was hidden by Mali's fashionable uniform jacket. Heyran, the hostess that had been there last time, greeted her as Mali entered. She was none the wiser to Mali's ability to fire 26 life-ending bullets via different weaponry on her person. Heyran led Malie through the front cafe of the bar to the corridor leading to the offices. She stepped aside so that Malie could enter Hyun Wu's office, then made her way back to the front. Malie entered, but Hyun Wu was on the phone. 
He glanced at her, holding up a finger as he moved the conversation to a conclusion. Hyun-woo said goodbye and hung up the phone. He reclined in his cushy office chair with his arms raised. Your son going for the schoolgirl angle. The boys are going to gobble you right up. Marie produced her 1911 and put a bullet between Hyun-woo's eyes. The sound was deafening. She usually wore ear protection, but the concussive sound within the small office room sliced through her forehead as she put her hand to her jaw. The gun was hot in her hand, but there wasn't time to think now that the ball had started rolling. She turned around to withdraw the second 1911, a pistol in each hand. Marie angled herself in the hall corridor as she moved through the doorway. A man was coming down the hall, but she fired instantly with two bullets, taking him down with ease. His name was Han Gyul, and he was on her list. She heard the distinct sound of someone pulling a drawer before cocking a pistol in the next office down. Taking a running start, Lady dove sideways into the threshold of the office, instantly taking aim at the man standing over his desk with a gun raised. Millie fired both 1911 pistols at once as her shoulder connected with the tiled floor, creating a hole in the man's stomach and the other in his neck. It was Kaija, another on her list. The pistol slipped from his grasp as he fell back into his chair, but Marie had moved with her back to the wall next to the door leading to the private room where bass music was thrumming. She waited with her pistols raised at the threshold, but no one came. The clock was running, though. She had given herself a grand total of three minutes to make this run, and it had gone basically according to plan so far. She hadn't expected the music to drown out the sound of her gunshots from the private room where the last five of her targets were dispersed. That would make things a little more difficult. But Marie was fast. She had pictographically memorized every single person's face from their profiles. It took only a fraction of a second for her to process if the person she was looking at was one of her targets, half a second to aim, little over a second to finish the job. Fast, but not fast enough. She would need to work on shaving that little bit of extra time, and it would need to come in the four and a half pounds of pressure it would take to pull the trigger on the 1911 in particular. If she overpulled, she would lose accuracy, especially with the additional time it took to maintain aim after the kick for the following shot. A hair trigger finger was best, even if it cost a fraction of a second longer. On and on her brain went, calculating how to become a better killer. She could never become a victim again. Muddy opened the door with her foot and kept the pistols at the ready at her back. There was a second bar at the back of the large private room where the girls were dancing on stage for approximately 26 men, two of whom were her targets sitting at a table while watching the dancers. She kept to the dimly lit sidewall and made her way toward Sang Hoon and Sung Min. They were chatting while watching the girls dance next to the secondary register. The two looked very confused by Mali's approach toward them, but of course they were caught off guard when she snapped two forty-five caliber pistols into their faces and blew them away. She had calculated where her other two targets were in the audience, and she had a clear shot. Everyone had gotten up to run or had dropped to the floor. The dancer screamed and ran off the stage. Yang Chen and So Jun had gotten low and were fumbling with their guns as Malie turned and directed the two pistols at the men who had no cover. She unloaded the last of her shots into them, dropping the pistols and drew the Desert Eagle from the waistband of her skirt. She turned on her heel to the bar where Sung Hoon, her main and final target, was manning the bar he had spent his life putting together. Everything had happened so quickly, he staggered backward as Malie raised the magnum and aimed as though he were a silhouette target. She fired, making a perfect headshot. 
then crouched to pick up the pistols. Jogging to the emergency exit where several other people had hurried out, Malie exited to the brilliant afternoon sunlight before stepping left and out of sight. The school bus was at the streetlight on the other side of the road. Malie dropped the pistols into her backpack, zipped up the bag, and pulled it over her shoulders. She made sure no cars were coming as patrons of the monster flooded out of the building. The school bus stopped to drop off a dozen girls in the same school uniform as hers. Before anyone could even begin to identify her, she kept pace with the girls until they had turned the corner. From there, she made her way back to the hideout, unable to hear anything due to the ringing in her ears from the repeated concussive shots. No one followed her. When the police viewed the surveillance camera footage later, they were never able to see Malie's face. All they saw was a shooter in a school uniform absolutely end eight lives within five minutes before virtually disappearing from sight. It wasn't until the following day that the full extent of the damage was realized, as every single person in Sung Hoon's sex trafficking operation had been executed. The police investigation into the apparent genocide at the Monster Bar led to the uncovering of one of the largest and fastest growing upstarts in the sex trafficking industry. I would have preferred that you weren't seen at all, Muna said from his desk later. This isn't a game, and just because you can hide behind the incognito of your disguise in the end doesn't mean that you didn't break a dozen rules. End my targets and don't become identified, Malie shrugged. I completed the task you laid out as you asked. You could have been killed, Muna said. There were two dozen American servicemen in that bar. It's a miracle you weren't retaliated against. I didn't give them time to do anything. It was surgical, as you said. And I sent the message as you requested, Malie said. All twelve targets are now deceased. I think I've earned my stripes, don't you think? Muna reclined in his chair and sat back to consider Malie. She was a snarky one, but she hadn't been identified, as she said, and the contract was now completed in full. No recruit had completed such a difficult contract in a way like this. It was hard to kill people without it becoming messy. And while this was very messy, the final product had come to fruition. Zero innocent people were harmed. Muna took a deep breath and pressed the tips of his fingers together. You're arrogant, said Muna. You take too many risks. But for some reason, I feel like that makes you the perfect candidate for the job. Does this mean I'm in? Muni asked. I'd like you to meet me at the Daegu hideout. Muna withdrew a business card and turned it over to write an address on the back. He gave it to Mali. The family meets there for war games. Don't bring weaponry of your own, but be prepared. Oh, and from now on, your name is Kashi. Che Mali is no longer with us. 7. The address Muna gave to Kashi was literally across the street from the Daegu International Airport. The building was as large as a Costco, but with no markings or indication of its purpose. She found the door and used the key code Muna had written under the address. A light on the keypad flashed green, and the door buzzed open. She entered, the door swinging closed behind her to latch and buzz locked. There was a foyer with coke and candy machines on one side, and a lobby cafe on the other. This area preceded the vast open warehouse of what looked like a giant military training facility. There were pyramids of storage containers mixed with trench materials. Dusty, war-torn earth and grit was everywhere. Ordnance was dispersed throughout the course, random pistols on the ground, 
rifles resting within rectangular containers made for them, and tubular containers jammed in the sand with the stock of their weaponry sticking out of the top. Kashi could just make out what appeared to be a downed helicopter in the middle of the training ground. I think you're going to enjoy this, Mona said, approaching from a corridor that led alongside the open facility. He motioned for her to follow. Kashi followed Mona down the corridor and around for what felt like a long time, until they reached a door on their left. Mona held it open for her. Get changed, and we'll begin shortly. Kashi stepped inside what was a small changing room. There was another door opposite to the one where she entered. The light over the door was red. On the only chair in the room was a box with a strange harness and device attached to it. Gashi withdrew the outfit and spread it out to show what looked like a set of laser tag equipment. There was a helmet that also had a glass shielding to cover the eyes. The fit was tight because there was foam padding over the earpieces. There was a chest piece and elbow and knee pads. The chest piece was essentially a bulletproof vest. There were green lights that wrapped each of the different pieces of equipment. She put on the get-up, feeling like she was about to play laser tag with her friends then sat down in the chair to wait. You probably have a good idea of what's going on from the little bit of information you have so far. Muna's voice issued from a calm speaker in the ceiling. It's single strike elimination. The armor you're wearing will constrict when you're shot. It will hurt, so drop to the ground once you're hit. Arm yourselves. The light over the door turned green and buzzed. Gosh, she was able to hear a series of other buzzes in the distance, signaling that her opponents were now free to move about as well. She emerged into the tall, training facility lights that cast eerie shadows in the darker corners of the room. The door closed and locked behind her. She saw a movement from a different part of the room for a second, but it disappeared. Gashi grabbed the butt of a rifle from one of the tubular containers and withdrew it. She checked the magazine ammunition, only to find that it was full of six rubber 308 rounds. Readying the weapon, Gashi looked around her as she backed toward the wall and made her way to the corner. She grabbed a pistol from the sand and put it in the waistband of her jeans. She climbed atop a small stack of cargo crates and rested the barrel of her rifle on a box in front of her. Shooting erupted from somewhere within the training room. It sounded like live fire. She saw movement as two people, a little older than her, backed between two of the middle trench pyramids that she could see. She snapped the crosshairs to one of their helmets and pulled the trigger. The bullet plinked and bounced off the person's helmet. A red light lit up on the back. She was probably 200 yards away, but she watched their armor vibrate as they fell to the ground. The person her previous target was engaged with ducked before she could line up her sights on them. Gashi had kept her ears open, and suddenly heard the sound of footsteps on cargo boxes behind her. She abandoned the rifle as she rolled while reaching for the pistol in her waistband. She turned over onto her back with the pistol raised in time to fire four times into the chest piece of someone coming to get the jump on her. They fell back off the boxes to the floor of the facility. Adrenaline pumping, she dropped off the boxes and ran through a tunnel made beneath the pyramid of trench material. Someone appeared at the other end, but when they saw her they dove out of the way. It was a wise decision as Gashi filled the rectangular exit way with bullets. She stopped, realizing there was no way she could exit that direction without being eliminated. She retraced her steps back, hearing gunfire behind where she would have left the passage. Gashi paused to grab a scatter carbine from a gun rack built into the wall of the corridor. She left the passage and took a right, keeping her eyes moving. 
The silence between shots that were dispersed throughout the vast obstacle course was the worst. Her mind could echo-locate her opponents based on their shots, but without being able to hear anything, she was in the dark. Gashi rotated back between her rear and her front, staying low as Muna had explained. Someone emerged from atop one of the pyramids to her right. There was a small metal facility at the pinnacle. The person identified her location before she could nab them, and then all she could do was shoot at a small sliver of the guy's helmet as he shot back at her from the corner of his vantage point. It wasn't good for her, and while she might be dealing with him, others would know where their shooting was coming from. It was single-strike elimination, so staying alive was key. She decided to retreat for a better position. When she turned, another participant darted around the corner in time to avoid being struck from behind. Gashi and the new opponent engaged, firing and missing repeatedly as they each avoided one another's shots. Gashi fell to the floor while aiming at the person and filled his movement trajectory and him with bullets. A sudden firefight erupted a few aisles over. Abandoning the scatter rifle, Gashi took up a second pistol before climbing onto the trench wall. She made her way to the avenue leading toward the fighting. Taking a running start, she ran up a stack of boxes and jumped off it toward the pyramid structure opposite to the one she was on. There were four people firing at one another in the intersection below. Having the aerial advantage, and calculating their positions instantly, Kashi fired at all four targets within the time span it took her to leap and land upon the other pyramid, nailing all four of them. She tumbled across the sand, landing on one knee dramatically as she scanned her visible 360 radius for any kind of movement. Kashi found a small avenue between two gun racks upon her hill where she could slip inside and hide for a minute. She checked her magazines, only to find that she had five bullets left between both guns. They were the same 9mm round rubber bullets, so she was able to load two from one into the other. She tossed the empty gun and left her cover. Dropping into the trenches, she saw movement and crouched behind a stack of tires. Three pistol shots struck the sandy wall next to her head. Kashi turned to her right to see someone dive off the upper level of the hill into the trench with her. Even as quickly as Kashi was able to line up a target, she wasn't quick enough to prevent the boy from snapping her pistol away. The two were suddenly in unarmed combat. This was where Kashi wasn't as effective, yet. Martial arts took time, and a few months on the job couldn't contend with her current opponent's several years of Taekwondo. She also stood at a grand 5'6 and weighed in at only 90 pounds. He had just thrown her to the ground when a girl rounded the corner to shoot the boy in the back. His equipment constricted as he collapsed to the floor. She tried to shoot Kashi, but she rolled out of the way toward her gun a few feet over. The girl swore as her magazine was empty at the most crucial point. Flipping over to her back with the 9mm pistol raised, Kashi spread her knees apart to shoot between her own legs at the girl. She dropped and Kashi got to her feet. A single alarm sounded throughout the facility. Two contenders remaining. Muna spoke over the loudspeaker. Gashi pocketed the pistol and grabbed an Uzi with a bump stock off the rack. This time, she checked the magazine to find that it was half empty. All the magazines were like this. She made her way back to the center of the facility, toward where the helicopter was lying on its side. It was too quiet as she made her way alongside the helicopter. The human eye is trained to spot patterns and the differences in those patterns. Snakes amidst the brush. She saw the rifle barrel peeking through an odd mound of sand where the pyramid structures of trench continued. 
She dove behind the helicopter as the rifle flared and fired at her. One of her opponents had buried himself in the sand, and now stood up with the sand pouring off of him as he advanced on her. She looked at the Uzi and pressed the stock up under her armpit. She only had this thing for one purpose, and it was time for it to do its job. Gashi rounded out from cover and sprayed the Uzi's fire at the boy with the rifle for the two seconds it had in it before tossing the Uzi away. As the boy dropped to his stomach to avoid the spray of her fire, she fluidly grabbed the 9mm and fired it three times into the boy's helmet, and that was game. The lights came up for a moment. Gashi helped the boy she had just taken out to his feet. He was still covered with sand. Nice win, he grinned. You almost got me, she said. Next time, I will, he replied. She would later know him as Cal. He would shoot her off the Inchin Bridge, which would spark her meticulous revenge campaign against every single person in this building. Return to the front of the facility, Muna said, then clicked off. The lights overhead went out, save for the light at the entrance. Everyone made their way to the front foyer where Muna was waiting for them. Each person began taking off their helmet. Gashi noted that there were seven other people here, plus Muna, a total of nine family members, and only one other girl. Muna also stood for Octopus, which made it strangely coincidental that there were precisely eight appendages to his will. Well done, Muna said. He was wearing a nice suit and had his hands in his slacks pockets. Welcome to the first official meeting of the family. Other than these occasional meetings that I will call, we will never meet in the wild. We will never hang out with one another. We will never be in one place for longer than a few hours. We do not travel in pairs. Each of you has a particular skill set. Each of you will be called upon for your specific talents. We are a family of few words, he continued. We do not rely on one another. We do not go out of our way for one another. We do not trust one another. It's not personal, but that we do not trust anyone. What links us as a family is that trust is never part of the equation. I have taught each of you to verify even my own information because everything changes. No one is safe. Nothing is secure. Some consider this sort of family to be a burden, but I've always thought of it as freedom. There are no illusions between your brothers and sisters. You do not love one another. You are joined in career and skill only. If you need a team, you'll be given a long list of reliable subcontracting companies, but your family isn't here to assist you. There is to be no communication between family members outside of the family meeting. If you see a fellow family member on the street, you will continue as if you never met them. The only time you can ever know that a fellow family member isn't working is when they're here with me. These rules are in place for a reason. If you are ever captured by the police... Know that jail, and even death, is better than the alternative. I think all of you understand by now that there is nowhere you cannot be reached for a price or otherwise if you were to say anything about our operation. Are there any questions? The family members looked between one another and said nothing. Good. I'm always here if you do have questions, said Muna. There's some pizza in the rec room. Then we need to depart before our hour ends. Everyone filed to a side hall where there was a table with a stack of pizzas on it. They spread the cartons and dug in. While none of them were particularly social people, Gashi didn't know what to talk about with anyone. If they weren't meant to associate outside of family meetings, what was the point? Not to mention, Gashi didn't have anything but her work now. 
She was finished with school and spent all of her time training. It turned out that the story was the same for each of them. They were all from different cities. Each person was able to utilize Muna's facilities and spend most of their time training. All of them were antisocial, all of them were outcasts, but they had found their purpose and each person was driven by that purpose. As Kashi ate her pizza with her new family, and each of them slowly opened up, she could hardly know that one day she would relish seeing each of them die as quickly and as skillfully as possible. 8. Che Marie, better known as Kashi, became one of the most prolific killers within the family. She consistently impressed Muna with her creativity that sometimes didn't require her to be at the crime scene at all. Che Ye Jun was a former K-pop star who made it big in the late 90s. His rise to fame was cut short after numerous allegations that the star would spike the drinks of his fans backstage after or before his shows. He was able to save face as the rest of the band fell apart not long after, and he was able to make a decent career doing solo vocals and commercials. South Korea still had a ways to go in the early 2000s regarding their version of the United States' Me Too movement. The voices of Ye Jun's victims fell upon deaf ears for long enough that it seemed as though he might escape from the bad actions of his past. His life ended in fiery shrapnel as he clicked on his coffee maker for his morning brew. Another beautiful display of creativity was her curiosity box method. People are monkeys who are too curious to say no. Even when their death is staring them in the face, they still can't resist. Gashi had to kill a child predator who was set free after 15 years due to a technicality, but the job was to make it look like a suicide. There could be no sign of a struggle, and it had to be clean. Not the death part. That would be a brutal bloody mess, but the execution needed to resemble an undeniably clean suicide. The man loved Dr. Pepper, so he always had a 12-pack in his refrigerator. Upon returning home from the grocery store, he opened the fridge door to see the handle of a 44 snub-nose revolver sticking out of the Dr. Pepper box. Without so much as a second thought, the man grabbed the handle and pulled the gun out. It was connected to a string that was tied to an apparatus that was connected to a second, identical snub-nose revolver mounted in the back of the box. Pulling it caused the mechanism to fire the identical revolver that was aimed at the man's face but clutched in his fist, as he went down, was the original, empty revolver that would lead the police directly to the suicide conclusion. Gashi had fired it a few times at the hideout, just so it would smell like it had been fired. Gashi climbed into the apartment from the balcony where she was waiting, tiptoed around the bloody mess to avoid leaving any sign of her presence, and removed the fired pistol and its apparatus at the back of the Dr. Pepper box. She wore rubber gloves on her hands and wore her treadless shoes as she snuck back through the apartment and left through the front door. No one saw her enter or leave. By the time the police arrived after one of the other apartment tenants claimed to have heard a loud noise like a gunshot, she was two blocks away with a crowd of pedestrians. The money Kashi made from her assignments allowed her to acquire an expensive flat in Kangnam in Seoul. She wore the latest fashion when she could, ate at the most expensive restaurants, and traveled whenever her work took her to another country. Because she couldn't go to university due to her current career path, Gashi spent most of her time taking language learning courses while learning a new talent to make her an even more effective weapon. She was allowed virtually no social life and couldn't keep a boyfriend. The work prevented her from getting close to anyone. 
She was to come and go regularly from her apartment, give the image of a normal life, but be busy within the shadows. She spent several months preparing her Italian. Now that she was 18 years old, she would be able to fly internationally. That opened her up as an agent considerably. Muna was ready to send her on a more difficult job. She remembered the darkness that clouded his face when he broached the subject of this hit. Muna was not a very expressive person by nature, but this case put him in a dour mood. This job is a personal one. The man you'll need to find won't be easy to track. He's a former secret agent that needs to be decommissioned. He was... the man who taught me everything I know. Muna placed a blue folder on his desk and opened it. Within were only three pages, possibly the thinnest briefing on an individual Muna had given to her so far, and included a not very clear black and white photograph of an American man in his late forties. This is Alexander Fitzgerald Hoff. He was an American CIA training instructor who moved to South Korea's ANSP and spent five years training our secret agents, including me. The amount of sensitive knowledge he has on everything and everyone makes him a security risk, despite his ability to virtually disappear. He's remained off the radar since the ANSP changed to the National Security Service. It was the way he disappeared that was bothersome, amidst a scandal that involved someone leaking information about high-ranking officials to the press. The only reason I'm sending you is because of your age. He'll inevitably see you coming. It's his job. But I'm hoping you're the last one he expects, which may give you the split-second edge you need. I'll do it, Kashi said, and took the file. It had a list of all of Alexander's aliases, a summary of his background, and a single paragraph from a source whose name was blacked out. The paragraph stated that Alexander had been last seen two weeks prior in a bar in Coria, Italy, in the hills north of Florence. The source identified Alexander at the same location twice, which meant that Alexander had gotten comfortable. Life must be so boring in the Italian countryside. A few pub visits now and then seemed in order. Surely, nothing would come of a simple visit to the bar. If there was one thing she had learned about covert ops throughout all of this, so long as there are eyes, one can never be invisible. 9. Was it carelessness that drove Alexander from hiding, or was it a clever trick to see if anyone was on his tail? After all, he might have done this multiple times, but only this time he was witnessed. A pattern of two with this particular target was quite possibly the worst pattern to go on because it was his job to disappear. That's what made this whole thing unnerving to Kashi. From the job's inception, she would be chasing a ghost who already knew someone was likely on his scent. Kashi exited from the gate at the Leonardo da Vinci International Airport in Rome several days after accepting the job from Muna. By now, she was expected to be able to cover her own expenses as the family was not a business, even though it acquired large sums of money regularly. It was certainly connected to a number of laundering businesses that Muna was involved with, but they allowed him to pay his employees in cash. She went to the bank on Via de Capo La Casse and opened a safe deposit box that Muna had left for her. When she opened the box, she saw that he had chosen the Beretta 71 for the job. She needed something light and mobile. Plus, it was probably one of only a few weapons that would actually fit in a safe deposit box. Finishing at the bank, she left and took a cab to the train station where she booked a train to Florence. It took a little over three hours to ride the train through the Tuscany countryside to Florence, Italy. 
The best part of her job, she was coming to realize, was traveling. This was her first trip out of South Korea as an adult. She and her parents had gone to Thailand and Hong Kong at different times in her youth, but that was the extent of her experience. Riding the train beneath the cloud-dotted blue sky and watching all the tourists, it was hard to believe that she was here to take a man's life. Did Alexander deserve to die? Was it fair to dedicate one's life to service, and even change allegiances within that service multiple times? Was it fair to be discarded once that service had ended? Gosh, he didn't know what Alexander had done to deserve being removed from the world, but Muna usually didn't start these jobs unless there was a noble reason. Gashi couldn't be held to question the decision, but knew that if she didn't do it, someone else would. Alexander was already a dead man. It was only a matter of when. She got off the bus and grabbed a bite to eat. She had a really delicious Italian place she wanted to try on her way back through Rome, so she went with a gyro from one of the street vendors downtown. She sat on a bench in the Piazza della Repubblica a large open square in the heart of Florence, and ate her gyro while clutching a cup of Sprite from the lid. She wore sunglasses that looked too big for her face. Her long black hair was clean and fresh in the cool wind that blew in from the countryside. She wore a black and white pinstripe blouse with the sleeves rolled up to her elbows, and a pair of short, denim-white shorts that let her legs tan in the Italian sun. Throwing away her trash, Gashi left the plaza with her pistol, her identification, and a stack of euros in her purse under her arm. She was able to rent a scooter for the afternoon and used it to travel northwest to Karaya. Hair tied into a ponytail, Gashi looked like the rest of the tourists traveling through the countryside on motorbikes or scooters. The afternoon sun gave the countryside the perfect warm temperature as she drove down the highway that overlooked a valley of vineyards. Coraya was a small town that was mostly apartments that sat between the Tuscany hills north of Florence. Other than the three or four restaurants in the area, it could hardly be considered a town. It certainly had a beautiful view of the countryside, however, and it was quiet. It was the perfect place to disappear in plain sight. Alexander's job would have allowed him to put plenty of money away for retirement, so why not disappear? As she stood next to her scooter to survey the hills overlooking the valley, she considered going back to tell Muna that she couldn't find him, allow Alexander to rest in his final days with a life well lived behind him, but that would mean she failed, and she couldn't allow that to happen. Gashi found the bar where Alexander was last seen. One side of the building had a wall with many windows with shades that could be opened to allow air into the establishment. The other side was constructed of archways that made up the entrance to the bar. Gashi entered and paused as she surveyed the interior. There were a lot of patrons, almost all of them Italian, only a few tourists from other countries, no American, at least none that weren't native Italian. Part of her training with Muna was being able to identify nationalities quickly. Much of that was in the fluency of their tongue. In an effort to look like she was trying to figure out what she wanted from the menu while listening to the whole of the establishment, Gashi got a slice of cheese and tomato pizza. She took a bite, relishing the fresh taste of homegrown Italian tomatoes. Her eyes scanned until they landed upon one of the older employees of the bar. He looked up at her while organizing the desserts in the glass display case at the checkout counter. His eyes moved to the other patrons momentarily, but they found their way back to Kashi once more. He was too old to be romantically interested, and probably saw his fair share of Asian customers, being in a tourist country. The look was more confrontational. 
The third time their eyes met, he flared his eyebrows, squinted, and darted his eyes and head to the left. He was beckoning her to follow. The bar was set in the center of a small plaza, so many of the patrons were seated at tables outside. Gashi grabbed her plate and went outside to the side of the building. The man emerged. He had dark eyes, curly black hair, and probably weighed about 210 pounds. He wore an apron that was stained with flour as he leaned on one arm against the wall. Gashi finished the last of her pizza, tossed the paper plate with it in the trash, and met with him. Listen, he said in English, don't take this the wrong way, but are you Korean? Yes, Gashi said. Her English was still very rusty, so she had to keep it simple. Do you know Mr. June? he asked. I know many Mr. June, she responded curtly. The name June was as common as Chris or Smith in South Korea. You know which Mr. June, he said. The reason you come here. He didn't wait for her to respond, but gave her a folded note that was torn from a notepad. As soon as she took it, the man went back inside. Not good. Alexander knew Muna was on to him. Yeah, June was the name Muna went by in public. It was the name he went by when he was dating her teacher. That meant her coming here wasn't a surprise, and Alexander would have the advantage. Everything was compromised now. If she was smart, she would leave Koraya and find another way, but she opened the note to look at it anyway. You're being misled. Meet me at the parking garage in Florence on Via Frisolana between 2 and 3 p.m. on any Saturday. Ask for Duncan. That was all the note said which was fantastic. It meant Alexander would have the jump on her in close quarters, no matter what happened. Knowing him, he probably had the entire bar under surveillance just so he would know when one of his inquirers were following. This would be the first of many jobs that required her to spy on a fellow spy, which is akin to giving a cat a bath. Pulling teeth might be less difficult, but the job is the job. 10. Everything about this gave her a bad feeling, because what would she do if she were in Alexander's position? Not only would she already know someone had an interest in following her, but if it was really her, she would be surveilling the followers' every movement. Is he watching me now? Gashi looked around to the corners of the room within the hotel lobby in Florence as she waited in line to get a room. It was not the closest hotel to the parking garage, but it all really depended on his resources. He might know how to track her throughout the city if he was tech-savvy enough. Being called out by the employee in Karaya made her think that she had plucked one of the threads of the spider's web, but Muna wouldn't have put her on this job if he didn't think she was capable. So what if Alexander knew she was after him? Whatever he did to be put on Muna's list, Gashi wasn't the person to question it. He would be found, and what would happen when the two encountered one another? That is why Muna chose her. It was because she won the war games with the family, which made her the only one he could trust to face the mirror of training that Muna had imbued into each of them. She and Alexander would clash, and there would be violence. Whether it happened sooner rather than later made no difference to Kashi. It was currently a Friday, so she needed only to wait an evening before being able to confront Alexander. The hotel clerk couldn't understand why Kashi wanted to book two rooms, one under the name Unji and another under the name Victoria Strassi, an Italian name among dozens of Italian names that were checked into the hotel. Money is money, and she had enough for both rooms. 
She went to room 552 that had been reserved for Victoria, took a quick shower, and stayed in her room. There's a romanticism to spies and assassins, that between the times they're working, they're having sex or partying. Maybe there was a type of person who could do that, but it didn't make sense in reality to Kashi. Doing covert ops was one thing, but becoming a familiar face in the area was a bad idea, especially when she was working a job this difficult. She ordered pizza to be delivered to her room, which, oddly enough, she could have wine delivered as well. She went so far as to answer the door with a tissue moisturizing mask on her face so that even the doorman wouldn't recognize her. Maybe she was being overly cautious, but Muna had trained her, and she herself had learned to think through every situation as thoroughly as possible. She could never become a victim again, and that required a level of skill over any given situation that she could only muster by being focused and vigilant at all times. It didn't take much wine to get Kashi drunk enough to collapse on the bed and pass out. She'd barely had a third of the bottle. The next morning, she was hungover. She drank once with some girls from school when she was 16, but claimed she hadn't felt anything. She certainly felt something now as she could only lie on the hotel sofa while watching travel with Rick Steves until noon as her forehead pounded. She forced herself to get up and get ready. She also needed calories. There was still some pizza left, so she finished it then tidied the hotel room to leave. She checked out with her bag on her shoulder. She wore the dress to her former school uniform, a pair of tennis shoes, and wore a red sweater over her white blouse. She wore a cardigan over that and kept her hair tied up. As she stepped down the steps into the morning sunlight over the city of Florence, her headache returned with a renewed vigor. The pain centered between her temples and hovered there like a painful black cloud. A fresh hot coffee eased her pain as she sat and stared down the busy street. She sat under the coffee shop's awning while watching the tourists pass as she waited for 2 p.m. to arrive. At 1.50, she walked the several blocks to the parking garage Alexander had directed her to find. Kashi scanned her surroundings as she went. Nothing out of the ordinary so far. A parking garage in Florence, Italy was different from a parking garage in South Korea or the U.S. The building was part of the rest of the block of buildings that matched the rest of the sector of the city. Most European buildings don't exceed a certain height to preserve the landscape. When she approached, she could see, through the open garage door, a number of Mercedes vehicles parked within as several valets prepared and parked cars for tourists who were coming and going. She checked her watch to see that it was just after two. Standing in line, a man with a clipboard standing just past the garage door entrance greeted her. Cosa posso far parler? he asked in Italian, which translated to, What can I do for you? Stokonendo Duncan. Oh, the man's face changed. He went for his pocket as Gashi went for her purse. She grabbed the Beretta's handle and was ready to spit iron, but the man withdrew only a small sealed envelope. The man gave it to her, and Gashi left. She rounded the block and opened it to reveal a short letter. If you're reading this, I'm assuming you're either Yajun or you're working for Yajun. You have no reason to listen to me. I already know money talks. But I was sworn to secrecy, and I've said nothing. I've disappeared as I was instructed, and yet, someone keeps sending people after me. I do not wish to pick a fight with you, whoever you are, but know that there have been five others before you. Finding me is a quick trip to the afterlife. I will only tell you this once. Turn back. There will be no further warnings. The men of the garage know nothing of me. I only paid them to give this note to you. 
If you are really intelligent, you won't only forget about me, you'll get as far away from Yachun as possible. Once you've exhausted your use, he'll throw you away like garbage as he's done to countless others. Here's to hoping we never meet. Alex. Kashi lowered the note and put it back into the envelope. And once again, her lead had disappeared into thin air. She stood on the street corner in the shade while thinking about what to do for a long time. And then she came up with a plan. She would need to draw Alex out of hiding, but how she could do that would require her to use everything she already knew about Alex to her advantage. He was an American, and he had been in the military, which told her almost everything she needed to know about him. He was loyal, willing to put his life before others, even if it meant the loss of his own. If he was called to action, he wouldn't hesitate, and that would be the carrot she would use to draw him out. On her way into town, she had passed an abandoned vineyard within the countryside. She was able to use a computer in the nearby library to find the address, and then when she wrote her own note that was addressed to Duncan, the note read, This is not a negotiation. Meet me at the old 48 vineyard south of Florence this evening at 6. Kashi. She gave the note to the man at the garage who looked just as perplexed as he had when Alex had given it to him. She walked down the street and purchased some binoculars from an antique store. She quickly found her way to the rooftops that overlooked the parking garage about a thousand yards away. It had been about twenty minutes since she dropped the note off, but she watched the man she had just spoken to standing just inside the threshold of the parking garage as he'd been before. A number of people came and went from the garage, but one older American gentleman in khaki shorts, sandals, and a relaxed short-sleeved shirt arrived on a blue-and-black scooter. He didn't look as old as she would have thought, he got off the scooter and met with the man in the doorway. They shook hands and the man clearly gave him a white piece of paper. Gashi had watched him give the other customers tickets, but not full-length pieces of paper as the note had been written on. The American thanked him, got back on his scooter, and rode north. What a predictable mistake. She knew he knew she was following him, but he didn't know how close. His movements would be difficult to track as he tried to go incognito again. Kashi thought about that as she descended the roof ladder to the street. A man yelled something in Italian as she dropped to the road, then scowled at her as she ignored him and jogged past. She had to follow the quickest route of traffic he would take before he disappeared entirely. He wouldn't stay in the area, regardless of her threat. He'd probably move on to another European country as soon as possible. Why risk one's life playing the assassin's version of hide-and-go-seek if they could just flee? Kashi ran down the street toward the main road of SS-67 running through the town. Her heart hammered in her chest as Alex drove across the street ahead on his scooter at about 25 miles per hour. She considered pulling up her pistol to shoot, but there were civilians everywhere, and he was out of a reliable target distance within seconds. She had studied the roadmaps of Florence carefully, so she knew that if she sprinted, she might be able to get ahead of him by the Arno River after the road south took a hard shift east. She jogged under the crisp oak trees that had fans of green and brown leaves as the spring season took hold. Motorcycles and cars sped through the intersection ahead, but Kashi wove between them. She got onto the sidewalk and ran down the road beneath Italian flags of the State Archives building. Crossing another intersection practically blind as she stepped between the moving vehicles that beeped irritably as they slowed, she ran three blocks more. She sidestepped into the street to avoid pedestrians on the sidewalk. 
then got back on the sidewalk between the lines of cars parked on the streets to avoid being run down. Kashi cut right on Via Orcagna Road, pumping her legs to travel south down the one-way street. After the second block, she saw someone getting onto their Vespa on the sidewalk. She drew her pistol and aimed it at the boy in the hoodie who was in the process of putting on his helmet. Kashi caught up to him before he could ride off and pointed the pistol at him. Emergenza! Emergenza! She yelled as the boy put his hands up and stepped off the scooter. She got onto the Vespa and revved it around to continue south down the parking lane to avoid oncoming traffic. Once there was a break in the traffic ahead, Kashi had to cut over the median between the parking lane into the main road in order to get onto SS-67. Alex passed ahead of her, but this time, she was able to merge into traffic at a safe distance and keep on his trail. She wished she had a helmet, not that it would hide her face. They passed a sunny park that lived alongside the Arno River. Alex started pulling ahead within the traffic buildup, so Kashi accelerated, only to stop suddenly as a white Fiat zipped in front of her from another road. She squeezed the brake hard enough for the back wheel to lift off the ground. She revved past the car in the small gap she had between the Fiat and the motorists that were trapped in traffic on the left lane of the road. She accelerated between the schools of vehicles toward Alex, who was at least half a mile away in the distance. Kashi had memorized his license plate number, but he would definitely switch to a car before leaving town. She swerved and traveled dangerously close to the line of dumpsters and parked cars on the right side of the road. The backdrop to this casual chase was the brown Arno River, with pedestrians and tourists walking the trails on the sunny Saturday afternoon. They passed an enclosed soccer field that was adjacent to the many apartment buildings that lined the main thoroughfare through the city. Then Alex turned left onto a one-way road against the advice of the signs protesting that this was a one-way only. Did he know she was following her? She had to keep on him or she'd lose him forever. Kashi cut onto the one-way, zipping past a car that was pulling out of its parking space ahead. They beeped, but Kashi ignored them. She had watched Alex turn right onto Quintino Sella ahead. She turned right onto the narrow boulevard. There was a moment where her heart stopped as it appeared as though Alex had vanished, but he had only parked his motorcycle with a line of other motorcycles and scooters. He dismounted the vehicle and hurried into an apartment building. Kashi parked and kept her hand on her pistol in her purse as she stepped onto the sidewalk and glanced through the glass window to the building. She saw Alex grab some mail from the downstairs mailbox, nod to another tenant in the building with a smile, then jog up the steps out of sight. Gashi quickly entered and mounted the steps with hopes of catching him entering his apartment. The moment she hurried on to the next floor, a fist flew from the divot between the threshold to the hall corridor. She had half expected him to know she was tailing him, so she tucked her stomach out of the way, but the two were suddenly thrown into melee combat. She got her finger on the trigger of the Beretta and tried to aim it at Alex, but he slammed her arm into the wall, causing the person pistol to topple to the floor. He was good. Gashi grabbed his arm and rolled into him, but he rolled with her to keep her from squeezing him into an impossible place. It was almost precisely the maneuver Muna would have made when the two were training. They made enough of a commotion that several tenants poked their heads into the hall. For a second, the two stared at one another like two dogs who knew one or the other would have their throat ripped out by the end of this. Alex withdrew a knife from his pocket almost in the same instant he darted for her like a cobra. Kashi pivoted sideways and grabbed his arm in mid-thrust as she fluidly pulled her arms free of her cardigan to wrap it about Alex's hand and the blade. She was able to throw both items behind her. Alex threw the heel of his palm at her face. Gashi deflected by covering her head with her arms and elbows. 
Every strike he made landed on a defensive block that she parried. Between these protective blocks, she jabbed back at him within microseconds. He tried to keep her on the defensive, but she would grab his arm and try to either control him into a chokehold or attempt to break his arm. She was insanely fast. A man raving in Italian tried to break them up, but wound up with a bloody nose and a fractured rib for his troubles as Kashi deflected him down the corridor. Being preoccupied with someone else gave Alex enough of an advantage to grapple her into a chokehold. But to the utter horror of the observers, she ran up the wall, across the ceiling, and broke free of his grapple. She tried to kick his feet out from under him, but he danced and dodged out of the way. Gashi dove into him, smashing him and herself through the door behind them. He kicked and flung Kashi off him into a bookcase by the window. The book fell into her hands, and she barely brought it up in time to use it to block a hard punch from Alex. She blocked a strike from his opposite fist with her knee, giving him just enough leeway to grab her and take her to the ground. The force of his weight slamming into her sent the breath from her stomach. He tried to put her into a sleeper chokehold, but she elbowed him directly in the groin. Alex reared up with an agonized yell as Kashi grabbed an extension cord under her hand and pulled it to get free. The two separated and got to their feet. Kashi grabbed a butcher knife from the kitchen counter as Alex grabbed a signed baseball bat that had fallen to the floor. The two circled one another for a second before Alex swung at her. She tactfully dodged the swing by darting to her right before he swung horizontally at her. Gashi ducked back to avoid the swing, then grabbed Alex's hand and shoved it onto the cutting board before slamming the knife into the back of his hand as the bat clattered into the sink nearby. <coughs> Alex roared, but Kashi had already precalculated his end. The police would arrive soon, and she would need to be gone when they got there. While Alex struggled to free himself of the bloody mess that was his hand, Kashi fluidly grabbed the cord to the bulky clothes iron. She turned while whirling the iron into a furious spin, and then, like a lumberjack bringing an axe upon a block of wood, Kashi brought the massive weight of the iron down upon Alex's skull, burying the point of the iron in the back of Alex's head. The strength left him and he collapsed to the floor while still hanging from his hand that was pinned to the countertop. Kashi backed through the mess the two had made as she considered Alex. The clothes iron had caved in the back of his skull, there were likely instances where people could have survived such a blow, but it seemed unlikely he would recover from the damage to his brainstem. She couldn't stay and do anything further. She turned, re-entered the hall corridor, and retrieved her purse and cardigan. The Italian natives were still staring at her in horror from their doorways. Gashi descended the steps for the lobby while pulling her hair from its tie to her shoulders. She exited the apartment building to the street and jogged around the block. She could hear police sirens in the distance. Out of sight of Alex's apartment building and patrons, she put up her hair then took off her sweater and turned it inside out where it had been custom made to be green on the interior. She needed to get out of Florence as quickly as possible. She hailed a cab, which took her directly past the police cars who were on their way to investigate a brutal murder, and then went straight to the train station. Not ten minutes after leaving Alex's apartment, she was on the SS1 train headed northwest for Genoa. From there, she would take a bus to nice France, then fly back to South Korea. A week after the death of Alex Hoff, Gashi returned home to her flat. She had bought groceries for herself, and had planned to spend her first night home in. There was an eerie quiet to the flat. It bothered her. She withdrew a thirty-two that she kept in the kitchen drawer, and searched through the whole place. There was nothing amiss, nothing strange about any part of the small apartment she had rented. She tried to shrug the feeling away and cook, 
but she couldn't shake the feeling that someone was watching her. The windows were closed. The apartment was empty. She was being foolish. Gashi prepared the soup she and her mother had once made together, the delicious kind with egg cooked into the spicy pork broth. She had added bacon to it this time to make it even better. She added egg noodles and ate half. An hour later, the soup bowl lay at the countertop, cold. Gashi sat in the corner with her face in her knees and the pistol next to her. She couldn't stop crying. It was the quiet of everything, the lack of life in anything she could touch. Muna met her the next day at the headquarters. She had gotten there before him and sat at the desk across from where he usually met with her. The place smelled of gun smoke, which meant that she had been there for a while. Everything all right? He sat at his desk across from her. I need another job, she said. Muna shrugged and opened the desk drawer. He paused, noticing that some of the papers weren't where they were supposed to be. One of the files was sitting at the top, and it was a lead that he hadn't quite completed yet. The details were still a little hazy. I take it you want this job? He held up the file. Gashi nodded. Muna dropped the thin folder on the desktop. Going for the reputation of being a savior of women. He's killed eight women and gotten away with it, Gashi said. He's also on another continent and has heavy security. This was supposed to be a two-man operation at the very least. I already have a plan, Gashi said. Of course you do, but you don't realize that not every plan goes off without a hitch, Muna said. Sometimes you need to decompress so that you can realize not every idea is foolproof. You'll slip up eventually. Gashi sighed. It's not the job, it's the hunt. I see, Muna said, reclining in his seat. In that case, I have a better job for you. I'm sending you on vacation to Dubai. He withdrew a folder he had in the pull-out drawer under the desktop and placed it atop the other folder. You can take out Richard on your way back. After, you deliver the documents you pick up from Dubai and Washington State. Think of it as a bonus, but this first job is a doozy. Good luck. I'm sure you'll make data collection just as exciting as you make hit jobs. Fine. Gashi got to her feet and grabbed both folders. Do you need money? Muna asked. I need work, not money. She left the headquarters and went to pack while studying this job that she hadn't known about previously. Gashi booked a plane for Dubai and made her plans on the way. 11. It was 7 in the morning when her plane touched down in Dubai. Gashi wore a red headscarf that wrapped her head and shoulders, covering her nose and mouth. She wore a dark brown riding jacket and kept her hands in her pockets as she exited the airport and hailed a cab. The cab took her to the Shangri-La Hotel. She entered and got a room as planned. Getting up at about 7.30 the next morning, Gashi left her room, got a coffee, and wrote in a notebook while sitting in a cushy chair adjacent to her target's room. She waited, getting more coffee when she ran out, until 11.15 when the room maid began making her way down the line of rooms on her floor. She only needed a minute, and then she could make her exit in peace. The room maid was dressed in all white with her own face covering. She would use the master room key, then leave it on her cleaning cart that she left in the corridor outside each room. When the woman was about four rooms away from her target's room, her target left his quarters in a pair of running shorts, t-shirt, and running shoes. He kept his gutra and agal in place around his head as he descended the steps for the lobby and street. She couldn't ask for a more perfect opportunity. 
Gashi got up and made her way to the cart the moment the maid used and left the card for the next room. She grabbed the card key and carried it and the notepad to her target's room, opened the door with the card, then positioned the notepad in between the door and door frame so that the heavy hotel door couldn't close and latch. She returned the card key to the cart a few seconds before the room maid could come back and out and find it missing. Just as the room maid returned, the door to her target's room hissed closed behind Kashi. Someone moved from around the corner. I thought you were going for a jog, a woman said from the next room. Gashi spanned the hall corridor between the door to the living quarters of the hotel room in a half a second. The woman came around the corner, and Gashi got her into a sleeper chokehold. She gave a quick cry before Gashi was able to make her unconscious against her struggling attempts to get free. Laying the woman down, Gashi hurried around the couch to the coffee table where Hamad's briefcase was lying. Draped over the chair next to it were several full outfits that were still in the plastic from the dry cleaning place. Gashi grabbed the briefcase and jogged to the front of the room. She opened the door and left the Do Not Disturb sign on the room's door handle just as the maid rolled her cart in front of the room. The maid saw the sign and continued rolling her cart to the next. Gashi turned and almost ran directly into a security guard. Her heart hammered in her chest as she prepared for a fight, but the man only glared at her and kept walking. Breathing a sigh of relief, Gashi casually walked down the stairs, avoiding the cameras she had spotted while casing the place. She was walking straight for a coffee and juice shop when Hamad emerged with a bottle of kombucha in hand. Gashi stepped behind a large pillar within the lobby and walked around it for the front door to the hotel as he walked past on his way back upstairs. He was going back to his room, which meant he would find his girlfriend in short order. Gashi needed to be far away from here very quickly. She left the hotel and hailed a cab. A driver pulled over in front of the hotel, and Gashi climbed into the back seat. Airport, she said, and sat with the briefcase in her lap. The driver nodded and pulled out into traffic to turn onto the road leading in the opposite direction. A sense of relief was beginning to settle in Gashi's stomach as she had successfully acquired her item and without any unnecessary death as Muna had instructed. She needed only to book her plane to the United States, and then she would be on to a more interesting job. The cab pulled up next to the Dubai International Airport entrance. Gashi stepped out, ignoring the roar of the airplanes overhead. She carried the suitcase inside and paid for her ticket. Security was quick, so she would be able to wait in the terminal ahead for the 40 minutes it would take for the next plane to the U.S. to arrive. It was a long time to wait. She tried to make herself as unnoticeable as possible as she sat behind a pillar adjacent to the window looking out to the landing strips. Occasionally, a plane would glide to one of the many runways and make for its terminal. The waiting was maddening. She felt like a sitting duck. The announcer finally said that their plane had arrived and would be boarding shortly. Gushy sat in her seat with her shoe and knee shaking nervously. She glanced down the aisle to the main walkway through the terminal side of the airport. Six men in suits were making their way from terminal to terminal. Gashi tucked her head back down, but glanced over her shoulder to see one of the men holding a device while looking around at the waiting passengers. The men approached her terminal gate. The man with the device entered the aisle and rounded the pillar to find the briefcase sitting in the chair. Gashi had walked beside two passing girls as they made their way to the restrooms before their plane could take off. They continued walking toward the facilities as Gashi nervously walked away from the gate. Many things had entered her mind when she saw the men, the first being that she would not be using the plane ticket she had ordered. 
she would have to find a different way out of the country, but that would be difficult as the second thing she had realized was if the men were here, then they probably knew what she looked like. Her current disguise was already a disguise, so without anything to change into she was in a tough place. She entered a small airport convenience store and purchased a dark blue headscarf. As the man at the counter gave Gashi her change, he looked over her shoulder at one of the terminal television monitor screens. There was a still image of her in the hotel, exiting Hamad's room with the briefcase, and she looked identical to how she looked at that very moment. Gashi hurried out of the convenience store and entered one of the restrooms. She took off her jacket and left it on the hook on the back of the bathroom stall door with the red headscarf draped over it. She wrapped the blue headscarf about her face and shoulders, making sure her yellow sweater covered the documents that were stuffed in the waistband of her jeans. Gashi joined a crowd of men and women as they made their way to their gate. She turned out toward the clear security exit. A man in his security uniform stepped around the wall just as she was passing, nodded to her, and Gashi hurried past him for the glass doors leading out of the terminal. The airport security of the Dubai International Airport would face harsh punishment for allowing the girl to literally walk past their units, step out of the airport unperturbed, and climb into a cab before leaving the scene entirely. To their eyes, and the eyes of her target, Gashi disappeared into thin air. However, to more observant eyes, there was nowhere in the city she could go where she could not be found. She had the cab take her to an obscure hotel in the center of town. She waited in line in the lobby until it was her turn to speak to the hotel clerk. Before she could open her mouth, the phone in front of the clerk rang. One moment, please. He held up a finger and grabbed the phone. The man answered and his eyes widened. He looked at Kashi. She was about to run, but he pulled the phone away from his ear and said, It's for you. Gashi's eyes darted back and forth. She stepped around the countertop and took the receiver from the clerk's hand. She slowly put the phone to her ear and said, Hello? Boy, you really pissed them off. The person on the line spoke. He was from somewhere in Dubai, based on his accent. Nice work getting out of the airport. I was able to clear your face from the wanted screens just long enough for you to make your exit. Who are you? Kashi asked. An interested party who's been watching you since you broke into Hamad's hotel room, the person replied. Gashi turned and looked at the open sliding glass front doors to the hotel, ready to make a break for another cab. Don't bother trying to run. You might be safe in the desert on foot, but even there, I could probably still find you. What do you want? Gashi spoke darkly. You and I have a vested interest in preventing those documents from returning to Hamad's possession. I'd like to help you get out of the country, if you'd let me. She was in a difficult spot. Taking outside assistance was against the rules, but she had zero capability of exiting Dubai on her own short of riding a four-wheeler into the desert, which sounded like a truly bad idea. She was going to have to follow the owner of this voice and hope Muna never found out. The airport incident alone might get her into serious trouble with the family, but her face was covered, her private identity remaining hidden. What do you propose? She asked. I have an Aussie friend that can meet you at the Almanad Airbase. It's about a 40-minute cab drive east from your location. Would he be able to take me to the U.S.? Mm, probably not, said the speaker on the other end. But he can at least get you out of the country. If you choose to stay in Dubai, you'll likely be caught. Hamad is a resourceful individual who doesn't like being stolen from, and he's very rich with a now very pissed-off wife. What's in this for you? Gashi asked. That's where things get interesting. 
I do this for you now. You do something for me later. See you at the airport. The line went dead. Gashi gave the receiver back to the hotel clerk, apologized, and left the building. She got a cab and told him to take her to the Almanad airbase as instructed. The driver shook his head and said he only traveled in the city, so she had to get out and hail several other cabs. The third driver didn't mind taking her out there for a little extra cost. Gashi obliged and she was off. It took over an hour with traffic for them to drive essentially out into the desert in the middle of nowhere, east of the city. The Almanad airbase looked like a giant compound. They went through a quick checkpoint to enter where the driver spoke in rapid Arabic to the guard in the guard station. He nodded and raised the cross arm to allow them entrance. They drove a little while through the desert around the compound buildings. The driver pulled up to the curb next to one of the bigger buildings, Gashi paid him double what it usually would have cost, then exited the vehicle. She had no luggage, just the crumpled documents she had stolen from Hamad's briefcase that she had tucked in the waistband of her panties and under her blouse and yellow sweater. She didn't even have a gun, which would have made her feel vulnerable except that she could easily take one from someone else if needed. An Arabic man in a black dress shirt tucked into a pair of expensive slacks exited the doors to the facility nearby. The man had a large mustache and beard. He looked to be in his late twenties. He spread his arms wide as he walked toward her. You made it! The familiar jovial tone in his voice met her ears. I wish I could give you a proper tour of Dubai and show you all the great wonders the city has to offer, but that will unfortunately need to wait for a better time. What is this place? Gashi asked, looking around at the sparse airbase that looked to only have a few members on staff. There were very few passengers, but most of them were from Eastern Europe. The ADF uses this base as their main transport and logistics hub. It's how a lot of European militaries ferry between the Middle East and the rest of the world. It's usually quiet unless something big is going down. He spoke as he led her inside. My name is Rahith. I don't expect you to tell me your real name, but it would be nice to call you something other than, hey you with the pretty eyes. You can call me Kashi, she said. Gashi it is then, Rahith said, holding the door open for her. The air conditioner cold hit her hard as she entered. Rahith pressed a hand to his chest as they stepped inside. My apologies. Gashi was suddenly mobbed by four soldiers in uniform and pinned to the ground. She didn't fight back as they handcuffed her, then took her to an interrogation room. 12. Who are you? A young man named Agent Philip Daly inquired. He worked for America's CIA and had a reputation for gathering information from unknowns like Gashi. He wore a light blue dress shirt that fit him well with the sleeves rolled up. The man watched her every move as she pursed her lips and said nothing. We have you on camera stealing documents from one of our targets, Hamad Yadav. He tapped a photo on the table before her showing her entering Hamad's room, then the photo next to it of her leaving with the briefcase under her arm. Next, we have you in the airport, leaving without the briefcase. We assumed you had it stored on your person in these next photos. He tapped three pictures of her in progress to leave the airport, before and after her transformation. But after you arrived here, all we found on you was a six-page recipe for making kimchi. Where are those documents you stole? Gashi wanted to say that they were probably piled in a giant dumpster at the airport with the rest of the paper hand towels and tissue from the woman's bathroom where she had thrown the documents away, but she didn't say anything. The less they had, the less they could do. They didn't have anything they could stick her with specifically. 
Those documents are highly classified, and they tell us what the Balnet organization is working on. The idea that they could be floating around the airport someplace is legitimately concerning, Philip said, but he may as well have been talking to a statue. Look, I know you think we've got nothing, but we have enough to extradite you to South Korea where you'll be facing serious crimes for potentially treasonous activity. Tell me where those documents are, and... He clapped his hands and spread them apart. We call it a day. You walk out of here and take a plane to wherever your ghost of a life takes you. I destroyed them, Kashi said neutrally. Why? Daly squinted at her, trying to use his techniques to see if she was lying. But her eyes didn't move left or right. It was like she was in a trance, with her eyelids half-closed along with her slow, toneless voice. It was a behavioral analyst's worst nightmare, like trying to derive feelings from a robot. Because I don't need them, Kashi answered. Destroyed them as in, shredded and flushed down the airport toilets. She lied, though the documents may as well be destroyed for how accessible they were. Why would you steal information then destroy it? He asked. So that nosy agents like Agent Daly can't use those documents to extradite me for a crime. Gashi met his eyes as at last Philip crossed his arms. He sat back in his seat. Look, you've obviously got training in this field, so let me just extend an olive branch so that we can stop taking pop shots at each other. It's important that operatives like yourself remain operatives, but drama aside, we'd like to know who you're working with so we can respond accordingly. If you're NIS, totally get it, but we need to know. I'm not NIS, and if you had figured out who I am, then I'd already be dead, Kashi said. Philip Daly knew at that point that the interrogation was over. She wasn't going to give him anything else, and the documents were nowhere to be found. Whether she was lying or telling the truth, it didn't matter. The documents weren't on her, she wasn't going to tell them where they were or who she was, and they couldn't keep her detained for any legal purpose other than displaying vague circumstantial espionage tactics in a public place. Unfortunately for the Americans, they weren't supposed to be there either. It was as though two spies of differing companies accidentally encountered one another and had no choice but to ricochet silently into the darkness without making noise. That's how Kashi found herself on a transport plane on its way to Morocco where she could continue her task without interruption. But in that encounter, Kashi had made a friend. Rahith had told her that if she ever needed anything, off the books, she could always ask and find out if he would be interested. She told him she planned to be traveling a lot, she thought about being alone in her apartment and wanted only to keep flying over the sea and land that was passing below. Six days later, Kashi arrived in Seattle, Washington. She got a rental car and drove east through the East Renton Highlands, then south to come to a stop at an expensive house that sat at the north point of a lake known as Shadow Lake. As ominous as that sounded, the house belonged to a physicist named Michael Goldstein. Kashi knew why he wanted the papers. When she rang the buzzer at the front gate, he asked who she was. All she said was, Dark Matter Warp Drive. A second later, the gate slowly opened, and Gashi entered. I'm thoroughly confused as to why you would come here without the documents, Michael said as he placed a tray of tea on the coffee table in front of Gashi in his living room. He was a short man with frizzy gray hair and a gray beard. I'm here to deliver the contents of the documents whenever you're ready, Gashi said. I just need a pen and paper. Michael cocked his brow at her, shrugged, and grabbed an eighth of the copy paper he kept in his office next to his computer. He gave the paper and a pen to the peculiar young South Korean girl who wore a black skirt and stockings, and a white blouse with the sleeves rolled up. 
He couldn't imagine what she might have had to go through in order to even witness those documents. But watching as she began detailing the documents word for word, equation by equation at an impossible rate, she was either some kind of prodigy with a pictographic memory, or one of the smartest on-the-fly mathematicians he could think of as she spat out formulas that might have baffled even the most savvy of experts. Once she finished, it took Michael several hours to examine what she had written. He was going to have to research more in order to make sense of the complex kinetic equations, but everything he could understand checked out. Do you know anything about these documents? He asked, genuinely curious if she could talk shop with him. So few people knew what particle physicists knew, so to have someone regurgitate some of the more complicated formulas that were essentially philosophical theory for how advanced they were was like seeing a unicorn in the wild. All I know is what I saw. I can still see the documents right now in my mind. Kashi tapped her temple. Extraordinary, Michael said. How long do these perfect pictures last on average? As long as I want. I can remember it, and other things, but I usually start forgetting the details of the last thing I wanted to remember when I see something else I need to memorize. Makes sense, Michael said. Well, I don't know who you are or where you're going in life, but I can say that the global mathematics community could really use a mind like yours if you ever wanted to get a degree or several in this field. Obviously, you know where to find me if you ever need a formal recommendation. Gashi thanked him for the tea and chatted with him for a little longer before leaving his home for her rental car. She returned to the main road, then headed southwest for California. She had a 24-hour gauntlet of a drive ahead of her. 13. Peter Smith made his fortune in the 90s by helping to contribute to the rapid downfall of companies like Kodak in the shift to digital cameras. He opened and sold 12 stores in 8 years, leading to a cushy retirement by the age of 42. He wasn't innovative enough to be on the cover of GQ or Entrepreneur Magazine, but he was fine with his hundreds of millions. No, he could never move further faster short of moving his assets into real estate, which, who doesn't? If he were ever exposed heavily to the limelight, they might learn about the teenage girl who was seen getting into his car on a gas station security camera. She was never found and has remained missing to this day. Peter's lawyers had done actual magic to make that case disappear, and yet it was still there, lingering in his past like a dormant cancer. But if they dug deeper, they might find that a similarly suspicious circumstance surrounded the disappearance of a woman named Carol Burgess in 1987. She was last seen drunk in the passenger seat of Peter Smith's car by a police officer who hadn't officially pulled them over. The officer recalled seeing them together while he was off-duty in the drive-thru of a burger joint, and didn't think anything of it at the time. He did notice how drunk the woman was, but Peter was drunk too. The policeman claimed that he would have pulled them over in a heartbeat if he were on the clock, but he had his daughter with him and his ex-wife was his ex because he had a hard time separating his personal life from his work life. In spite of being divorced over the very issue, he had promised to make a concerted effort to keep work at work. Upon the disappearance of Burgess, the officer's claims became essentially worthless as it was a mere claim that he saw them without any evidence. There was no citation or logged exchange between Smith, Burgess, and law enforcement that night, and unfortunately, his daughter was only six years old. There were seven of these strange coincidences in Peter's history. That's why he wouldn't be a billionaire, or an influencer, as the kids were calling it these days. He would take his money and cash out of the casino and remain in the shadows for the rest of his days. 
In 2002, Peter sold three houses and purchased a restored Roman villa in Malibu, California that overlooked eastern Malibu from atop its perch within the hills north of the town, beach, and endlessly blue ocean to the south. Here he would disappear from the world and drown his boredom away in alcohol. No one would ever find Carol Burgess or Trish Matthews. They would never learn what happened to Dana Farver, Jennifer Parrish, Sidney Rice, Stacey Roper, or Stephanie Roberts. The girls would disappear in the wind, their screams unheard in the distant stretches of empty land where Peter had taken them to end them in a violent drunken haze. It was easier to do that sort of thing prior to the year 2000. That's why he stopped, and so far as he knew, no one would ever find out. But armchair sleuths have been a thing for a long time. Unsolved crimes largely remain unsolved, but occasionally some amateur journalist nonfiction hack writes a book linking four disappearances to Smith, which subsequently linked him to two others due to his residence location at the time of each disappearance. Peter and his lawyers were able to dismiss the shady, speculative evidence from the book, however the real damage was done. Peter Smith began getting his own file as Muna compiled evidence for each of Peter's crimes. He was about 98% complete when Gashi uncovered the file. Muna had wanted to take out Peter himself, but sicking Gashi upon him felt somehow more justified. The growing problem with Gashi was that she had become too confident. She thought she could just walk up to a target's home, ring the doorbell, finish the job, and get away unseen like nothing could go wrong. Life was more complicated than that. But more importantly, humans were more resourceful than she was giving credit. She still had yet to learn never to underestimate how cunning fellow humans can be. This idea of Gashi was held in Muna's mind as Gashi made her way up the sidewalk to the front of Peter Smith's grandiose home in her schoolgirl uniform. She was going to walk up to Peter's front door, ring the doorbell, and then Gashi would be the one to decide if she had underestimated Peter Smith. Completely unarmed, Gashi stepped under the elderly birch and maple trees leading to the stairwell entrance to Peter's villa. There was no doorbell, so she would have to encounter Peter's security team. She called this game plan Trojan Horse, and it would hopefully work just as well as the technique worked for Odysseus. It was 5.30 in the afternoon, so the light was beginning to fade from the day to the west beyond the hazy canopy of tree leaves, casting the stairwell in shadow. Are you sure about this? There's no turning back once they see you. Rahith asked through the earpiece in her ear beneath her straight long hair. She wore a short-sleeved sky-blue dress blouse that was covered with a navy sweater vest with pink diamond pattering in the stitching. She wore a gray skirt that was only 12 inches long and barely covered her thighs. Her white knee-high socks descended to her favorite pair of Converse shoes. She had called Rahith on his offer to help her on the side. This was a simple process of disabling Peter's security system while gosh she was within the building. Because the job required illegal activity, Rahith had requested 50% of the take. Gashi had obliged without hesitation. Everything is in place. No turning back now. Mission is a go. She continued through the side passage until she encountered the first of Peter's security team guarding the stairs. Ma'am, this is private property, the security guard said. His eyes immediately went to her pale thighs beneath her skirt. I go to Calvary Christian Academy at the base of the hill. Gashi raised her index finger nonchalantly over her shoulder as she spoke with her Korean accent. I was doing a science project on the properties of Bernoulli's lift, and my kite landed on the roof of your building. A kite? The man clarified. Yes, I saw it go straight onto the roof. I'm a really good climber, said Gashi. I can go up and grab it if you'll let me. Just get a new kite, kid. Forget that shit. The security guard glared at her. 
I spent all last weekend making this specifically for my science class. I'll get in trouble if I don't have that one. Damn it, kid. The guard turned away from her and pressed a button on his white wire earpiece. Anybody seen a kite or some shit floating around the courtyard? There was a pause before someone replied. It'll be on the roof or something. Any luck? Gashi asked as the man turned back to her. Ain't nobody seen nothing. I guess if you guys won't let me go grab it myself, I'll have to come back tomorrow with my science teacher. I won't get a grade if I don't have that kite. Gashi shrugged and started to turn like she would leave. Hold up a second. The security guard shook his head. He pressed the button on his earpiece. Do we still have that ladder on the third floor? Another pause. Well, this kid seems to know exactly where it is. If I can bring her in, can you send someone up there? I don't want her suing the shit out of us if she falls. Eventually, the man waited for her to follow him, and then led her up the stairs to the second floor of the large Roman-inspired building. They rounded the stairs to the balcony walkway, preceding a large rooftop garden with a long fountain extending the hundred yards to the main residence of the household. They walked alongside the path and passed between the fountain and a long wall of well-kempt shrubbery. There were other walking paths beneath ornate Roman-style arcades with canopies of leafy vines covering the crisscrossing wooden trellis eaves woven between the arches. They mounted a set of steps leading to the courtyard that was lined with statues of different Roman heroes and portrayals of the different gods. Someone was playing classic Italian opera music from one of the rooms above. It's up and over there. Gashi pointed to a spot on the roof in one of the corners of the courtyard. The security guard looked up and radioed in the location. A minute later, two of the security guards carried an extra-long ladder out of the corridor to meet them. On the upper floor of the courtyard, a man in his fifties with bottle-cap glasses appeared between the archways. He wore an expensive robe and looked like he had just gotten out of the shower. He put a hand on one of the archways before continuing toward the stairs at the end of the upper hall. Two of the security guards placed the ladder in the middle of the alleyway on the external cobblestone walkway of the courtyard. They rested the top against the orange terracotta ceramic roof shingles. One of the men began to climb, and that's when the man from earlier descended the steps to the courtyard and approached. Be very careful. Peter Smith made his way to the base of the ladder behind the security guard. The shingles can come loose and you can slip and fall. The security guard nodded and slowly pushed himself onto the rooftop. This place is really cool, Gushy said. Yes. Peter drawled, his eyes creeping to the white stockings covering her legs. It was modeled after the Roman form of architecture, common in residences from around 80 AD. You seem interested in a tour. Really? Gushy made her best effort to sound enthusiastic. I insist. Peter waved for her to follow. Gushy followed him through the darkened archways beneath the upper floor of the courtyard building, back to the garden from earlier. He paused at the top of the steps and waved at the fountain that stretched the length of the garden. The afternoon sky had turned to twilight as the sunlight faded from the west. The property was constructed in 1974 as an additional home for Howard Hughes, but he only stayed here twice, allegedly. Everything you see was designed and inspired by the villa of the papyri at the Herculaneum. The peristyle alone that you see in the garden here took over three years to construct. This is one of four gardens on the property, each one sparse with plant life from the Mediterranean. Replicas of Roman bronzes excavated from the Villa of the Papyri can be found throughout the gardens. Peter turned and beckoned for her to follow once more as he returned down the adjacent side of the courtyard toward the steps. This courtyard is known as the Inner Peristyle, flourished with manicured bay laurel, boxwood oleander, and viburnum shrubs. 
But upstairs, we have the high-dollar items that both the Italian and Greek governments have been haranguing me to return. The two climbed the steps and walked along the upper channel overlooking the courtyard, passing the security guards who were dispersed throughout the property. Gosh, she pretended to be innocently interested in everything. The two entered a large display room with different Greek and Roman statues positioned majestically throughout the large, naturally lit hall. This is the landsman Heracles, discovered in 1790 in Tivoli, Italy, within Hadrian's villa. It was acquired by the French dealer John Monique Landsman. It was later sold to several dealers until I purchased it in 1978. Gashi surveyed the naked statue of Hercules. He stood casually with a club on one shoulder and the skin of the Nemean lion in his other hand. Both the statue's penis and nose had been broken off long ago, but the testicles were still there. He showed her another statue of Zeus reclining on a chair. Both arms from the forearms were gone, and much of the middle of the statue's face from the nose had crumbled. She could still see the unmistakable curling hair and beard around the hollow, lifeless eyes. She noticed as Peter continued showing her between the ornate statues and masks on display that the security team was fully absent from this hall. They passed by a bronze and marble Roman desk that was against the wall, and that's when Peter made his move. Gashi had been waiting. She knew he wouldn't be able to resist. He was a monster on the inside, and she had masterfully placed a piece of delicious cooked meat right at the entrance to its den. It didn't matter that Peter believed he had reformed or left that other life behind. The monster was still inside of him. She felt the point of a knife pressed to her side, then all of Peter Smith's weight as he pressed himself to her backside against the table. His robe was open, and he kept the knife in place. He then groped her breasts over her bra with his left arm. Everything happened so quickly. The act of him cornering her against the table, the motion of Gashi falling onto her palms upon the ice-cold marble as her hair fell into her eyes. He tried to put his hand upon her back to force her down, but Gashi whirled and elbowed him in the face hard enough to break his nose beneath his glasses. Grabbing the ancient Roman sheath that had housed Peter's dagger, Gashi readied it as the monster within Peter took possession of him. He threw his weight forward to drive the knife into her. Gashi smoothly but instantaneously snapped the sheath over the knife, then snaked her other hand around his wrist before popping the sheath's dagger hilt free from his grip where it clattered across the floor. Help! Peter managed to scream, but then he charged her with his fists. Gashi kneed him in the stomach, doubling him over. She placed both hands upon his back and threw her other leg over his neck and head while kicking off the floor. As the two helicoptered to the ground, she grabbed hold of his left arm while getting his neck into a triangle choke with her knee. He tried to scream, but Gashi flexed his arm against the ball and socket joint in his elbow and shoulder. She fought the resistance she had known from training and pulled as hard as she could until she heard the audible snap, followed by the agonizing moan from Peter Smith. Security guards began flooding into the room as Gashi rolled away from Peter. A security guard ran at her, but Gashi charged up the wall to land a home run kick upon his skull. It didn't knock him out, but it did send him to the ground as two other men charged her. Gashi landed a tiny fist directly under the jaw of one attacker while hooking her converse shoe into the throat of the assailant behind her. The moment she recovered, she grabbed the black tie of the man in front of her and yanked his upper torso down to slam a knee into his solar plexus. A fourth guard came at Gashi, but she grabbed him and whirled him with his own inertia to the floor while tugging the Ruger LC-9 from his underarm holster. Her finger tagged the safety, and she shot him dead and the three others who were trying to recover or get away. All of this happened within the span of about 11 seconds. Her aim went for Peter, but she only barely saw the tail end of his robe as he jogged out through the side entrance at the other end of the courtyard. 
Stop her! She's trying to kill me! Peter wailed from the upper floor of the courtyard while clutching his dislocated arm. Gashi exited the display hall as he reached the stairs and disappeared down the stairwell alcove. Damn! Gashi swore and jogged back the other direction. She ran down the hall corridor as bullets ricocheted off the ornamental archways that covered the wraparound balcony overlooking the courtyard. Two men mounted the steps ahead of her. They didn't make it to the top of the stairs, but Gashi paused behind the archway pillar to withdraw the magazine to check her ammo count. It was a seven-bullet magazine, not a nine. She only had one round left. Just as the security guard rounded the corner, she shot his loafer-covered foot. Charging him, she hammered the butt of the Ruger directly between his eyes, and then snatched his Glock 17 while replacing the empty Ruger in his hand. She followed this quick mashup of skills by kicking the man down the stairs. A bullet whizzed past her from behind. Gushy jumped to the pillar of the archway at the top of the steps. She used her inertia to spin around the pillar and in the two men behind her. Bullets peppered the wooden post above her hand as she dropped to the steps where the other man had just fallen. Three more security guards hurried into the courtyard. One of them saw movement and filled the area with bullets, only for Gashi to push one of the bodies of his own comrades down and end him. One of the men had dropped an Uzi. She grabbed it and threw it as hard as she could at the man coming around the corner, then double-tapped him before ducking behind a stone birdbath that was reduced to powder as she checked her magazine. Four rounds remaining. She avoided being struck, then emerged from the rubble of the birdbath and clipped her attacker's scalp as he tried to hide behind the low hedges. We've got police chatter, Rahith spoke in her ear. I'm diverting them, but that may only give you ten or so minutes. Whatever you're doing, do it fast and get out of there. I'm trying, Gashi gritted her teeth as she hurried behind the hedges that lined the inner walls of the ornate courtyard design. She saw Peter running to the right of the large fountain. Three more security guards emerged from further down the garden to begin shooting at her. Gashi waited until they needed to reload, then ran as fast as she could down the passage, hurrying past a cowering Peter Smith. She jumped and tumbled to kick one of the security guard's legs out from under him with all of her inertia before slamming her other leg into his midriff. The man went tumbling. She shot one of the other security guards from the ground before turning the Glock upon the man she had knocked down. Gashi grabbed a rounded ornamental post and pulled herself up, nearly pulling herself into the line of sight of the other shooters. They fired anyway, thinking she was coming, but she held back as the bullets sliced through the air before her eyes. She ducked behind the hedge from the other side, seeing the idiot waiting for her to enter the passage ahead. He saw her and his eyes lit up, but it was too late. Gashi turned to see Peter Smith hurrying across the sidewalk path toward one of the many exits beneath the canopy. She shot him in the thigh and he went sprawling. She dropped the empty Glock pistol as she approached him. Your security detail is gone. It's just you and me, Peter, Gashi said. The monster was gone from his eyes now as even severely injured he crawled upon the ground to escape her judgment. She stepped on the tail of his robe to keep him from moving then grabbed the silk robe belt that was mixed with the rest of his blood-soaked undergarb. Please! Peter clambered around on his bottom as the blood in his thigh gushed from his body freely. Gashi looped the belt around his throat and wrapped both ends about her fists. I'll do anything! <laughs> she then pressed her shoe to his chest as hard as she could. Peter's face went from red to blue. Gashi could feel the circulation leaving her fingers as she watched Peter's eyes bug from their eye sockets. She thought of the women he had killed, considered that there were probably more that he had murdered, not unlike the way he was being murdered now. The life began to leave his eyes as he clawed and gasped for breath that Gashi would never give to him. 
His arms went lax and he became nothing more than a large piece of meat. Gashi dropped him, feeling the relief in her fingers that were now bleeding from under her fingernails and around the edges of her index and pinky finger joints. I'm dropping dozens of 911 calls by the minute, but you've made a lot of noise out there, Rahith said. Make your exit now. On my way out, said Gashi, running past the last of the fountain toward where she had entered. She patted her hair down and straightened her sweater vest and collar. She tucked her shirt back in and jogged through the eerie and dark stairwell corridor toward the street. She could hear the sirens on their way. She crossed through a small thicket of trees that separated Peter's property from his neighbor's house and came to a relaxed walk just as the police drove past the connecting street ahead. She had no weapons, and Rahith had scrambled the security feed. Even if they had her in custody, they wouldn't have anything on her unless they ran the prints on the guns she stole, used, and dropped, which would come back with nothing in their law enforcement system as Gashi had never been arrested or fingerprinted in America. She was thinking about that when an officer pulled up in front of her and rolled down the window. Gashi put her still-bleeding hands behind her back and paused, trying to keep herself calm inside. The officer stared at her before asking, We heard reports of shooting. Did you hear anything? I heard it back there. Gashi almost pointed, but instead just turned her head and nodded back at Peter's house. His police instincts kicked in. How old are you? He squinted at her. Seventeen, Gashi lied but she was only 19, so she was able to pull it off. Thankfully, a breeze from the ocean blew against her, taking the smell of gun smoke from their conversation. He looked forward and craned his neck to look at Peter's property. Do you need a ride or anything? My house is right there. Gashi tilted her head toward one of the many wealthy estates whose driveways fed the street. Hurry home and lock your doors, he said. We're having trouble figuring out what's going on. Okay. Gushy nodded and walked on as the police cruiser continued down the street with the window rolling up. The police scoured the property and the story became headline news, but none of the many conspiracy theories that formed behind Peter Smith's death ever came close to the actual truth of what happened. The mysterious death of Peter and his security detail would later spawn a subculture of creepypasta stories involving revenge ghosts and other supernatural entities. As for Gashi, she returned to LAX airport and booked her flight out of the country. 14. Revenge is not even a dish best served cold. Gashi felt nothing after she killed Peter, and she had expected to feel so much more. It was just the same as when she killed the men who had killed her parents. There's nothing special about taking life, just as there's no redemption in taking life to pay for the loss of life. Peter Smith was gone forever, and that was good enough, but she took little satisfaction in completing the job. She met Rahith in Shanghai, handing off his money that was secured and counted in a zip-up leather bag. Nice! Easiest payout I've ever had! Rahith grinned as he put the leather bag's strap over his shoulder. Gashi put her fingertips into her jeans pockets as Rahith rearranged the jacket beneath the bag strap. When he was finally comfortable, he placed his hands together. So, you gave me this job? Now how about I give you one in return? What is it? Gashi asked. It's strictly off the books, but there's this black ops team that needs a good shooter who can blend in with a crowd. They're all ex-military, doing mostly mercenary for hire work. A few former Navy SEALs, some Blackwater guys. They pay well, and I can pass along that you come highly recommended. I'll do it, so long as they know I can't tell them who I'm working for, Gashi said. I'm sure they'll find a way to make it work, Rahith said. The two chatted a little longer, and then Rahith bid her farewell. With that, Gashi returned home to South Korea.
She had to wait a week before being able to debrief Muna on what happened with her last two missions at the Daegu hideout. She told him everything, and he listened patiently. Once she was finished, Muna sat back in his desk chair with his fingers pressed before his nose as he liked to do. So, you walked up to Peter Smith's house, he welcomed you inside, and then you killed him in his security detail and left. Essentially, Gushy said. Muna relaxed his fingers into a prayer's grip. Nice, he smirked. I think it's time for you to learn how to put together your own contracts. But before that, you and your brothers and sisters have a test to complete. Are you ready? Have you eaten today? I have, Gashi nodded. Good, you'll enter through door 16, Muna said. Gashi got up and walked down the rounded corridor to the training arena Muna had constructed for them to hone their skills. She entered and put on the gear she had put on the previous time she had run the gauntlet. She always felt like she was gearing up for laser tag. She sat down and waited for the rest of the family to arrive and prepare. It was at least 15 minutes before Mona's voice issued over the intercom in the room. Welcome to Test 61. If you look at the small console on your chest, you should see the number 10. Your job is to prevent that number from reaching zero for 30 minutes. Do not fight your fellow family members. Your focus determines your conclusion. Prepare yourselves. The loud siren issued and the door opened. Gashi exited her door and hurried into the replica trenches and warfield that had been created in this place. She searched for a weapon but found nothing. There was not a single container or firearm in proximity to her person. She was still looking when the siren issued again. Several doors opened along the edges of the room, and people in full black outfits that covered their faces began advancing on her. One of them had a rapid-fire airsoft gun at the ready. Gashi had no choice but to retreat up into the building structure that sat atop the hill overlooking a quartet of trenches. She opened and closed her hands, preparing them for the work they would need to do. Someone in all black entered through the doorway. Gashi grabbed them and took them down to the metal floor. She noticed a number four on the digital chestplate display and dropped her elbow four times upon the person's stomach. Two more people in all black entered on either end of the small metal room. Gashi pushed to her feet turned and elbowed one person in the chest, then kicked the person coming at her from the front. She turned and blocked the attacker she had elbowed in a flurry of timed strikes and blocks. The moment she exposed their chest plate, Gashi delivered a triple punch to the device. It constricted and removed the player from the game as Gashi finished the other two in time to turn and swat both hands at the new attacker with an airsoft pistol raised, disarming them of the pistol instantly. The room was too tight. She needed to get out of here. Planting a kick on the chest plate of the man she had disarmed, she shoved him into three other people waiting outside. She kicked the airsoft pistol into her hand and masterfully emptied the pistol's chamber into each person's chest plate within less than two seconds before tossing the pistol aside. She had become a machine from the training she had done, designed to survive against all odds. She jogged past seven more assailants in black before diving into the trench below where her brothers and sister were engaged with an army of melee attackers. Joining the fray, Gashi and her brethren fought for the win as the memory dissolved in a haze of bloody noses including her own. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was written, voiced, and produced by Benjamin Allen. If you'd like to support our podcast, be sure to subscribe, leave a good review, or check out our books and audiobooks at night-books.com. That's night with a K-books.com.
All Gashi knew was that her face felt ice cold. A weight of pain the shape of her entire form greeted her mind as she didn't think she could move. She broke her elbow through the layer of ice that had formed over her, the parachute, and the snowy debris that encased most of her body. She pressed a hand to the packed snow beneath her and pushed herself up to her knees. She went to put her hand to her face when her hand stopped midway as it was anchored to the handle of the briefcase that was buried in snow. Gashi grabbed the handle of the briefcase and yanked it free. She unhooked the parachute, shook the snow and ice free of it, and shoved it all back into its bag. Taking off her skydiving upper jacket, she put it into the bag with the parachute and got to her feet. Dusting the snow off her black pants and white sweater, Gashi put her face into the crook of her sweater's elbow to warm her cheeks. The sun had come out, so it felt good, but the altitude was too high, so it was still freezing. She kept to the wall of the runoff and tried to keep from falling into the soft areas of the snow. She descended the mountain slowly as the sun waned in the afternoon sky. The wind of the air burned her cheeks on her face. Gashi marched on, keeping to the rocky walls of the ridge that had seemed so small below when she was up in the sky earlier. The snow began to grow dirty as the rocks of the mountain protruded from the powder white. She paused on a cliff next to several pine trees and dropped to her bottom beneath them to shade herself from the constant sun. About forty-five minutes later, as she was descending the grassy slope toward the valley between the ridges leading up to the mountains, Gashi saw tourists and mountain climbers at last. The sky was blue overhead and all around her were the heavenly mountains of the western Himalayas. As the afternoon sun set the snowcaps ablaze, Gashi took in the setting as her heart ran in her chest. She couldn't help but realize once again how much she loved her job. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is a production of Nightbooks, LLC.